It's Tuesday, June 15th, 2021, and this is the Talk Film Society podcast. I am your host, Marcelo Pico, Editor-in-Chief of Talk Film Society, here to intro uh, episode 85 of the Talk Film Society podcast, uh, another in our TFS 100 series Uh, Yes, we're doing the Talk Film Society 100 poll, Um, third time in as many years that we're asking our readers, our listeners, I'm going to ask them, I'm going to ask everybody to tell me your favorite films or what you consider the greatest films of all time, you know, whatever your definition of top is, uh, we're doing the top 100 films according to all of us, according, according to the talk film society and its readers and listeners. Um, yeah. So go to talkfilmsociety.com slash TFS one zero zero talkfilmsociety.com slash TFS 100. And yeah, fill out the poll there again tell us your top 25 um this is the third in our series uh about the tfs 100 and simple enough i'm asking my guests uh, what their top 25 films are and this week no different uh david giannini uh dave he's my guest uh, at darn that dave on twitter without further ado because hey this one's a long one um uh, again he was great <laughs> longest one i've done so far i've recorded four uh this was the third one uh, uh i recorded and it went about uh, you i mean look at it look at look down at your you know iphone or or whatever device you're listening uh to this on it's about two hours and 40 minutes so um yeah, but hey every bit of it fantastic I'll shut up and let me and David tell you about his favorite films of all time. You're off and rolling. All right. So... Yeah, I'm going to record an intro for this later, so I was like, let's just get into it, because it's 25 movies, you're 25, greatest movies of all time. I I, I, I should also bring this up with everybody I talk to, uh, Dave, but um, there's that distinction, and I talked to Greg about it. I'm sure at this point that episode will be out, Uh, me and Greg Mucci, and um, I should also say, I'm going to repeat the story every time it comes up, but... (laughs) um, I asked him to be on the show. It's like, you know, top 25. Um, he's like, yeah. Then he, as he's making the list or after he makes the list, he sends me a DM saying, I hate you, Marcelo, for making me do this. Make me rank <laughs> my top 25. Make me, you know, make a top 25 list. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's in that episode, we discussed, you know, favorite versus best or like mm-hmm. top movies. Um, and as we go through that, I want to pick your brain on that and just how I'm interested sure. in like how people make, how people, you know, come to terms with making their top 25. I have not made my list yet. That's mm. going to be a running thing throughout this entire series too. Is me Scott Pilgrim, number one. Listen, I'm calling it right now. I'm not, <laughs> not going to spoil it. I'm not going to reveal it now. People just have to wait and see. Um, but yeah, as we go through this, that'll come up. But uh, but yeah, um, and 
we're gonna do them five at a time. So, you know, uh, and you yours is ranked. Yours is absolutely ranked, Dave. Right? You're like yes. Yep. 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 Like from twenty five to one, this is exactly how I want it. That's what you said. So, yeah, this is exactly how I want it today. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we're gonna go from top to bottom, twenty five to one, five at a time. And yeah, again, I, oh, and I guess I should say, and maybe you already touched on this in the intro, but yeah, we're doing this because the talk from Society One Hundred list. Uh, we're building that with people uh, voting for their top 25 of all time and and uh, yeah so by the end of the summer that list will be un- un- unveiled so uh, this is all just leading up to that uh, talking to great people about their top 25s and uh, you know if people listen and want to vote and um, before they vote we can give them a lot of recommendations a lot of like hey maybe I should see that again or hey I have not I haven't heard of that movie. I should give that a shot. So, yeah, just, uh, just, uh, just, uh, you know, come for the great talk and then, hey, fill out that ballot too. Um, mm-hmm. Talkfilmsociety.com slash TFS100. I believe that's the link. But that's enough of that. This isn't plugs. <laughs> let's just talk about this list. Uh, Dave, let's go from the, from the bottom to the top. Let me just get into it. Okay, number 25. Oh, God, you picked this movie I cannot pronounce. Nino Tachka? Nino Tachka? It's pronounced Ninochka. Ninochka. Okay. Yes. Uh, 25, Ninochka from 1939. Uh, 24, Phantom Thread from 2017. 23, A Separation from 2011. 22, The Exorcist from 1973. And Paris, Texas coming at 21 from 1984. Those are the first five. Um, where do we begin? Do we want to talk about the one I cannot pronounce? Although I know Ernest yeah. Lubitsch, I know him. Okay, yes. I'm a fan of his work. Um, let, let's start that. Let's start with Nino Tachka, uh, Dave. Because <laughs> so close, you're getting closer. You're getting closer to the right pronunciation. It's also it's Russian, so yeah. Ninochka. Ninochka. Right? It's, it's a running theme throughout the entire throughout the like <laughs> almost 1,000 episodes of podcasting that are out there. I cannot pronounce words for shit so bear with look, me look i can't blame you for this one this is not like you know a standard vocabulary word this is not and then it's it's totally understandable and then we'll talk phantom thread and a separation so we'll talk about those movies here in a bit but talk about okay ninochka ninochka so so ninochka good is a uh, it's actually a movie it's probably the movie on here that i watched for the first time like the most recent like I had never seen this until maybe a month ago, um, and it immediately like just jumped into my top twenty-five. Like it is just a brilliant, brilliant comedy, but also works as a love story, as a drama. It stars Greta Garbo, and it was like a huge deal when this came out because before this movie, Greta Garbo didn't do comedy ever. Like, she was a siren, right? She was always, like, you know, the love interest or the, you know, what passed as a femme fatale in the 1930s. That was Greta Garbo. So, like, even the poster, the tagline was Garbo laughs. Because that's not something she had ever done on screen before. It's actually do comedy and laugh. And this is, like... 
This, I wonder if, if I were to make this list in a year or so after it sat with me for longer, it probably actually goes up. It, it, I mean, it's one of my favorite comedies ever made. Like, it just, it works 100%. There's, like, no fat on this movie at all. Um, Garbo is great. Her and her romantic lead, like, really, really work. That by the, like, it's one of the few comedies that's also a romance that, like, actually moved me. Like, the romance itself. You could take out all the comedy bits, all the laughter, all the fun, and just their relationship. Like, by the end of the movie, like, I felt myself getting emotional based on this pairing, which is such a rarity in a comedy. Nanochka is great. Many people haven't seen it, uh, so I recommend that everyone see that movie, probably more than anything anything else on this list. Yeah. Because a lot of these other ones, you're like, oh, yeah, I know that. Like, either I've seen it, or I know it's good, I know it's, you know, well thought of, but Nanochka is a movie, maybe, that you can't pronounce, <laughs> or that you've even never heard of by, by the time you hear that. Can I ask, uh, what uh, made you watch the movie? Was it for a podcast? Was it just because, hey, I've heard this is great? It's always for a podcast, Marcelo. It's always for a podcast. So I I do a Oscars podcast uh, called Awards Don't Matter. Uh, so we take each year, we take a look at the one that won and maybe one that should should have won or should get like more press than it does. And Nanochka, I think, was nominated the year that Gone with the Wind won, uh, where it just won every every award possible so it just got kind of forgotten like to the point that before this before this podcast i'd never heard of it like i was like uh it's a bad title like i think that's what kind of ruins it for a lot of people like see it like oh that sounds drab and boring maybe it's like a like a history uh it's like a biopic or something about someone i've never heard of but it's not it's like a really fun comedy romance and it's just it's just wonderful like it's one of those movies you watch and it just makes you feel warm uh, throughout the entire runtime. Like, there's never a point where you're like, oh, this is boring, this is tedious. It's just like, oh, this is nice. This is what a crowd pleaser is really like. You've convinced me, Dave, so uh, I... That's, that's, uh, if I can convince one person, that's all I need. End of Good. episode, we're done. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're done. Goodbye. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, Paris, Texas, I'm going to talk about. That's one I, I did see, like, for the first time maybe two years ago... And it sat heavy with me, but mm-hmm. it's one I need to watch again, I know for sure, because I don't have right now the appreciation that obviously you have and like other people have. But talk about Paris, Texas in particular, because I feel that one, I don't know, it's not, it's not that I need conv- convincing, but I just am dying to hear your thoughts on, on, on mm. it and uh, how maybe it affects you personally. Look, your reaction to that is perfect because um, I had the same reaction. Like the first time where it sometimes, you know, you watch a movie and you're like, I know this is great. I know it. I can feel it. But like, ugh, there's like so much. Exactly. Just like I can't I can't take it all in. It is a movie that demands repeated viewings uh, because I think because so much of the first act of this movie is basically silence. Like, it's this man walking down a road, and you don't know who he is. And the movie, it, like, slowly, slowly unfolds and shows you a little bits of who this man is um, throughout throughout the runtime. And so it... So there's a bit as you're watching of this kind of like you you want to jump into it because it's so beautiful to look at. Like if you want to look at beautiful filmmaking, beautiful vistas, like Paris, Texas is the movie for you. Like it is just absolutely stunning to look at. But because it takes its time so much, I think there's a little bit of whatever the opposite of edge of your seat is, right? Like it's not tense, but you are kind of on the edge going like, I want to know more, but you're not giving me that much to get interested. And I think when you watch it again, knowing what you know about the movie, 
like you're going to be totally there and it's going to kind of shoot up your list because it is one of those movies. And, you know, I mean, obviously, like just the the cast, it's, I mean, Harry Dean Stanton in, to me, his greatest role. Um, and this is the man who's been in like a thousand movies, like he's been in everything. But yeah. this is this is the Harry Dean Stanton movie because in most in most films he's the character actor, right? He's a little bit of comic relief. He's got he's got one of those like weathered faces where he's like made to be a character actor. But instead, he's your protagonist here. But like really, who really steals this movie is Natasha Kinski. Like her performance, like not some of it, most of it non-verbally is some of the most stunning work you will ever see. And there are shots in this movie that will forever just be seared into my brain. Um, there's one shot with her with kind of her back to him in this room. And that's the only thing I want to say to describe it because you just have to see it to really understand like kind of the superimposed imagery that Wenders is doing and the patience that the director has to just have these shots unfold in front of you is something that you don't usually see. And this is where the kind of best versus favorite thing probably comes up for people mm, like this yeah. is and a lot of the movies on this list just warning you now uh it's a it's an art film list right <sighs> there's a lot of like there's some populist stuff in here too but there's a lot of just like oh this is a, a film with a capital f like this is very criterion very that kind of style and this is that kind of movie like this is not if I made like 25 favorite movies, I don't think this even sniffs that list because it's not a movie where you could just be like, I'm going to have a good time tonight. I'm going to watch Paris, Texas like that. No, no, you know, Nochka might make that list, but Paris, Texas is definitely not. So it's kind of its own. There's a bit of like travelogue to it. There is relationship drama to it, but without but it's never melodramatic, which is something I really love about it. Like, it, it does keep you at a little bit of a distance, and I think you'll see other movies on my list. It's something that I actually really like in movies, is a, is a film that doesn't spoon-feed you. It doesn't show you everything on the surface. Like, I love movies that demand another watch, and Paris, Texas is definitely high on that list. Like, I don't think this is a movie, not to be a a pompous person about it, but it's not a movie you can get on one watch. I didn't like when I first watched it, I was like, yeah, that was really good. Sure. And then I waited. And then like three or four months later, I'm like, let me watch that again. And it just like the second viewing is just absolutely mind blowing. Like it'll, it'll just completely throw you for a loop. And I just love movies like that, that reward a second watch. And I think that's the difference between people who are quote unquote cinephiles and people are like, yeah, I like movies. I like going to the <laughs> movies. Like people who really dive into the art side of it. It's nice to be rewarded for that instead of like, yeah, I've seen this before. I kind of know what's coming. This kind of has surprises around those term, those turns because of the depth that it has. Um, and since you brought it up, that distinction between like favorite movies and best movies, you definitely are erring on the side of like best, right? Like yes. best yeah. made movies. It's like, like Yeah, like best best ever and it was a you know we'll get to it but it's a bit of a challenge because i'm trying to pull from like different generations and i'm trying to not just have one type of movie on there so i was happy that i was able to like slip a few comedies in here too because i think that is a genre that's really underrepresented um in best of lists because you're like oh it's just a funny movie that's all but there is an art to comedy comedy is really hard so i tried to kind of include some of that in there as well yeah speaking of comedy i mean one of these five here you know is it could be seen as a comedy or some of you know we can talk, about, talk that. about phantom thread the funniest movie <laughs> the yes uh, but then there's also the exorcist that's another genre we'll talk oh, about in a big, bit big laughs <laughs> also hilarious i've seen it a thousand times laugh every time um but okay 
Phantom Thread. Now, I want to... Okay. When you say it's the funniest movie of, what, the last how many years? Are you being serious when you say that? 100%. Okay. 100%. Okay. And yes. I'm with you because... I mean, I mean, you were you were there when it obviously you were there when it, when it came out, and you were there for the discussion around it because I remember I thought it was funny. I I like first time it was one of those situations, kind of what you were saying before. Like it didn't really, didn't really hit me that first time, but then seeing it again, mm. I'm like, oh, this is hilarious. I love it. It's like every so time, funny. every time I see it, it's like great. And <laughs> the audience I saw it with. They were also laughing, and then there was this discussion online about, oh, it's not really a comedy. It's like, what? Why do people find this funny? That I understand. Like, I don't know. Right. It's maybe you could maybe you could talk more about that about how this definitely mm-hmm. it's funny, but it's also yeah. just oh, a yeah. beautiful romantic film. Ugh, right. I, I love it, and I think this is you're hitting exactly why people are confused by this movie. Right? It it looks like a Merchant Ivory movie. Yeah. Right. It looks yeah. like Remains of the Day. It is that type of filmmaking. Uh, to me, like this is, I guess, a hot take. This is to me PTA's best movie. Um, but I will say that, like, um, just about every movie I've seen of PTAs, I would give at a minimum four and a half stars. So it's yeah. like, this is just slight differences here. Like, you know, you, you love Boogie Nights, you know, that's fine. You know, go with that. If, uh, you know, if you love There Will Be Blood, that's fine. Go with that. There's there's lots of great options here. Um, but this is absolutely a comedy, but it throws people off because of that that type of filmmaking that he's using here. But I just don't know. How you sit through the asparagus scene and not lose your mind with laughter. Like, I saw this opening weekend because, you know, it's a PTA movie. I'm going. Yeah. I'm going to be, it could be about anything. Like, you'd be like, I'm going to make a comedy about, you know, the KKK. I'm like, well, okay, it's PTA. I guess we're doing this. Like, whatever. Um, it's like him and Fincher and Spike Lee, like, they're directors that I'm just like, I'll watch anything they do. Um, and I didn't really know anything about it other than it was like kind of about fashion. That was like the only clue i had going in and i was not expecting this to be so funny but it's essentially it's a really twisted rom-com like that's all this is like the the scene where he orders all the few all the food that's like a stereotypical rom-com meet cute yeah that's all that sequence is right and then they go through and they fall in love and they have a big fight and you think that they're going to break up and then they there's a grand gesture at the at the end of this, right, and the grand gestures happens to be poisoning the man you love, uh, so he you know vomits and shits all over himself, like like every great romance. Like it's just, I think it's a beautifully made film. I think it's really really funny. I think also the thing that threw people off is Daniel Day Lewis doesn't do a lot of comedy, right? He's like the you know everything he does is gold as far as like awards and Oscars go. He's like the male the male Meryl Streep, right? It's like oh well, it's uh, Daniel Day Lewis. This must be very serious, and I should this is my left foot this is is very very serious stuff and i need to you know give it the respect it's due which just goes to show you how much people disrespect comedy uh when they walk into movies like this um but i think you know there's three main characters in this movie and they all are really really funny in different moments and i think it also throws people off because it's also a romance like a honest to god romance not a rom-com romance but like a real like put all your cards on the table romance and people aren't used to comedy being thrown in there with there and i remember reading a uh in uh one of those uh, reddit amas with uh with pta and right after this movie came out someone was like hey are you ever gonna make a comedy and he's like are you kidding i just i just did like you should watch this again like this is not 
this is not a straight up drama. This is absolutely a comedy. I mean, you have moments in this where like a woman is ripping a dress off a drunk woman because she has sullied the house of Woodcock. Just say that out loud. <laughs> Just say the house of Woodcock and tell me that this is not a comedy. Like you don't name a character Reynolds Woodcock. And have this be like a period drama. This is not the type of movie it is. And I think, I think PTA is like really undercover funny. Like if you, if you watch his, like the only out and out comedy he did is the one he did with Joaquin Phoenix like that. And that didn't get the best reaction. I think it's brilliant, but I get why people wouldn't connect with it so much. But like, he is really sly in the way, in the way he delivers his comedy. And this is, this to me is the absolute perfect example of it. But it also just really works as a romance. It's very two very messed up, twisted people that absolutely belong together. And it's great that they have taken each other out of the equation so they cannot damage other people. Because these are two messed up individuals. But together, they absolutely work. And it just like, this is a movie I've probably seen six or seven times. Um, like, it's one of those that I just constantly go back to because I just want to kind of relive that moment. Like, I remember very vividly the asparagus scene that I mentioned. Um, I was in the back row of the theater, like, dying laughing, <laughs> cackling to the point where, like, other people turn around like, <laughs> you okay? It's so funny because they didn't get it. Like, people weren't laughing in my audience. Like, they were being very deadly serious. And I was like, oh, you, you missed it. Like, you thought... Oh, you you thought this was Daniel Day Lewis in 1992? Like, no, no, <laughs> this is absolutely a comedy, and it just it it just really works for me because it's like a subtle comedy, but it's not so subtle that you're like, oh, I don't really get the humor. It's too it's too on the side. I understand it. Like, if you just like if you go into it thinking about comedy, you're gonna watch this, and I think you're gonna like it so much more than if you went into thinking it's a period drama directed by PTA about fashion. Perfectly. I mean, I totally agree with you. And it's one I keep watching and I love it even more, which that's mm-hmm. the that's the true sign of like an all time favorite. And yeah. I mean, right now it's not it's not close to being my favorite PTA, but I think with a few years time it may very very well like surpass like right. for me it'll it's like there will be blood, but who knows what it'll, it'll what, what it'll be. In I five mean, years. like I said, you can make an argument for pretty much maybe yeah. except Hard Eight, right? You can make an argument for any one of his movies being one of the greatest of all time and certainly your favorite. So there's no wrong answers there. There you go. Uh, yeah, you heard that, listeners. There's no wrong answers except me. Yeah. Unlike mean, with David Fincher, there are wrong answers with David Fincher. Okay, we'll listen, Alien Three <laughs> is a masterpiece. <laughs> That's actually true. Alien 3 is a masterpiece. Um, <laughs> um, b- b- before I move on, I want to touch on A Separation because that's one mm-hmm. I have not seen. And oh, man. I know I know it's going to be great, Dave. I know I'm going to like appreciate it as a great movie, but I know it's going to be heavy. I mean, yes. yeah, right? That's what I should expect. Yes. A heavy, great movie, right? Yeah, and it's the best way I can describe a movie like this is it's effortful. Like, it's not a movie, like, regardless of, you know, not being in English or whatever, like, it's a movie you got to put effort into watching. Like, it is not a, like, well, let me. Let me just pop this on. Like 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 a movie like Parasite, I feel like you could just pop on, right? It's yeah. like it is it does have heavy themes, but it's like it's it's housed in like almost like a popcorn type movie, 
right? It's fun. There's comedy. You know, there's kind of back and forth. There's a little bit of violence. Like, you got a little bit of everything there. Where Separation is a, like, basically just like a two-person drama with a capital D. Like, it is, and it's rough. I mean, it's about the the deterioration of a parent. It's about a family breaking up, making really hard decisions. Like, do I want, if I end this, can I provide a better life for my child and of course it's set in Iran um, as pretty much all of um, Asghar Farhadi's movies are and by the way like if you ever just want to watch a great movie just find this director's name and watch anything he does like it's just the man has not made a bad film yet they're all incredible Uh, they are all pretty heavy so know that going in Um, but you know you know in Iran the kind of culture of gender is different than in the United States right you know, like a lot less rights for women. There's a lot, the the society is much more patriarchal and you get a real feeling of that pure oppression in this movie. And like both of the leads, I mean, just absolutely pitch perfect performances. Like there's nothing that you should ever change about them. And the direction is like so tight and so controlled, which again, like fuels that feeling of oppression, like everything about it, like all the, it's a movie that's, the sum of its parts is already great, but the movie is more than that. It's more than the sum of its parts because everything comes together in just the perfect way to create this just like phenomenal movie. Um, and if you ever have the energy to watch a movie like this, this is one I would highly, highly recommend. Like just, I think it's it's Farhadi's best. Um, not that his other movies are bad in any way, but this is just kind of a level above, which of course is why it's in my top 25 of all time. Obviously, I could probably say that about anything on this list. Obviously, this is great. I love it. Why? Why would I put it on my list if it wasn't great? Uh, but a separation yeah. is one that like maybe not a lot of people have seen and need like you need that little push. Like yeah. I know it's gonna be good, but like uh yeah. Separation is amazing. I'll watch it. I'll watch it. I promise, I promise. Now okay. one I mean, yeah, before we move on to the next five, real quick, the Exorcist, of course, like it's like do we need to convince people this is like an amazing movie? It, it is an amazing movie. Uh, it, it is. It's it's incredible. It's 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 better than it has any right to be. As far as like, not that like horror is like always bad or religious horror is always bad, but it just it really pushes that envelope. And you know, you hear all these stories about people like vomiting in the aisles when the movie first came out. I don't know if it's that. It never had that impact on me. But I watched this for the first time when I was young, like ten or eleven, and I was raised religious. So this really got to me. Uh, when I was a kid and really anything that puts children in danger is always extra terrifying and her performance in this is just like I don't know like they always say like getting great um, performances from animals or children is more good editing than good acting Uh, but I don't know like this is this is up there like this may be one of the greatest performances by a young person that you'll ever see um but it doesn't overshadow what everyone else is doing. i mean ellen burston is in this she is always phenomenal i mean like oh my god just just an incredible incredible movie and it's so different than you think right if you haven't yeah. seen this movie and you've just seen the clips of like the head spinning around and the, the pea soup and the you know all the cursing and all that there is so much more to it like you could even take out all the scenes with her in it and just have the the priest's interaction and it's a great almost familial drama as well as the horror aspect like i hear a lot of people saying it's the greatest horror movie of all time and yeah it is a horror movie but it doesn't fit quite in that genre perfectly like maybe some other movies that we'll see on my list it kind of stands out for me and it's one that you know about every five or ten years i kind of i always go back to it and i'm like 
and I keep wondering, like, maybe this is the time it's not as good. Then I watch it, I'm like, nope, this messed me up again. Like, here we go. I guess I'm not sleeping tonight. Like, it's it's just one of those movies that never really loses impact for me. Yeah, that's something that I always forget. And and maybe it's never where it should be, which is, like, it should be in the front of my mind. is like, one of the best horror movies ever, which I do think it is, but I tend to forget that right. because, you know, culturally, we just remember, like, the pea, you know, the, the pea coming out. Uh, the pea soup, sorry, not pea, pea. Um, <laughs> you know, we we remember the pea soup, you know, vomit. We, we remember, like, uh, you know, the head twist, like you said. But, yeah, it's just so – there's so much more to that movie. Like, there's – it's yes. – uh, that drama in there still works so well just on its own with – you know, in addition to, you know, the, the stuff we all know about with Exorcist. But, yeah, I'm going to see, like, it keeps I, – I keep forgetting, but every time I do watch it, I'm still as like entrenched by its like uh, its doom as you know yep. as, as before. It's, um, a, it's a great description. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the next five. Number twenty, The Apartment from 1960. Number nineteen, Young Young Frankenstein from 1974. Number eighteen, Blue Velvet from 1986. Number seventeen, Movie Cost Citizen Kane from 1941. No one's um, ever heard of that. No. Uh, number sixteen, <laughs> The Passion of Joan of Arc from 1928. All right. Where do we begin? So let's start with the obvious one, Citizen Kane. I mean, yes, it is one of the greatest movies ever made. Yeah. 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 And like, honestly, like we kind of talked before this about how this is my top 25 today. Like this could go anywhere from 17 to one, just depending on how I'm feeling and how recently I watched it. Like, and I think if, you know, it's something it actually has in common with another movie in this five, The Apartment, that it just feels so modern. When you watch it, like it does not feel, um, it does not feel like a movie from the '40s at all. It like if you colorize this, which you should never do, but if you colorize this and you you know put new actors in it and you remade it and you didn't change anything, it wouldn't feel out of place. Like it has the pacing of a movie from now, um, and it's incredible that this is like. Orson Welles's kind of introduction almost to the to the film world like he cast a bunch of theater actors like just people he knew but there's like no weak spots in this cast at all it feels like there should be it feels like there should be people that stand out where you're like oh that's not a professional film actor and you can kind of tell like it just absolutely works and it's and it's a heartbreaking movie like it's just you know it starts off being about this rich man and figuring out you know his last words that's of course the big mystery of the film and it really becomes about a a poor boy that never really had a chance to be a full human right it's just like he was he was at this disadvantage like yes he was rich yes he was powerful yes he did terrible things to people but if you track all of this back it's amazing that by the end of the movie you feel bad for him you feel bad for what he went through in his life, even though he became, you know, the most popular man, you know, the most uh, the most rich, the most well-known, all that stuff. And it is, of course, like a takedown of a real person. But I think you can watch this from more than one perspective, which I think, again, is another mark of a great movie, right? That you can, if you look at it from a different point of view coming into the movie, watching it the second or third time, you find all this new stuff to really take a close look at. And it's like, what hasn't been said about Citizen Kane? It's Citizen Kane. It's like, it's terrific. Like, that's the tagline. It is, you know, and it's always in, apparently, I don't like it as much as most people. It's always in the top five of every list, right? It's like, you know, Vertigo go and this and you know apparently Paddington 2 for some kind of reason <laughs> you know this it's always up there in that top five 
And um, just like my personal way of approaching my top 25 is like I am going to, you know, uh, lean on the side of favorite rather than best. Mm -hmm. But if I were forced, if somebody did force me to go on a podcast and make my top 25, you know, best of, you know, list, like best in terms of like best like well-made movies system can't has to be on there like i'm like it's hard it's hard to argue yeah it's like i am yeah. still in awe of the technical aspect i do love the story story is still powerful still works but technically that movie decades later i'm still in awe of it and it's almost like technically it's probably a perfect movie like from the technical side of things yeah and the fact that Wells was so young when he made this like almost makes me angry like that you made this technically flawless film uh, when you were like 12 years old like it's just like are you are you kidding me right now like and also like if you look at Orson Welles in this movie also like undersold Orson Welles really good looking man really yeah. a beautiful presence on screen and you're like you're good looking you're <laughs> talented you did this at 18 years old or whatever it was like how dare you like really just have a flaw and I guess his flaws came later his flaw was food eventually he got to where we all get to uh, but at this point in his life it's like oh my god just perfection on screen we all end up being voiceover actors for Transformers the movie so that's what happens so, yeah. someday, someday someday yeah um <laughs> young frankenstein i should say i'm glad i see another comedy because like that's something i said on a previous episode that i just hope whenever the talk from society 100 list comes out when we add up all the all the ballots and, and see where you know where we what we end up with i hope there are enough comedies on there because like every yeah. time i see like a top whatever list no comedy. No comedy. But Young Frankenstein. Young Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Young Frankenstein. Mel Brooks. It's uh, he is actually one that I have a hard time picking. Like my favorite of his. It's either going to be Young Frankenstein, uh, Blazing Saddles, even mm-hmm. like I don't know, even like High Anxiety. I love. Yeah. Uh, but talk about Young Frankenstein. Yeah. Talk about. I mean, was it hard for you to pick like a favorite Mel Brooks, or was just this is a no brainer? This is this one's for me a no brainer, and that's no shot at his other movies. I I mean I love Mel Brooks. Like I'll watch pretty much. I mean I like Dracula Dead and loving it. Like I'll watch any <laughs> yeah. Mel Brooks movie. It's Thank fine. Um, but this is the one that really sticks out to me. This is the one that's most rewatchable. This is the one that has. I think it's got more layered jokes than almost any movie I've ever seen. Like it's it's like I I will watch this like ten or fifteen times, and on watch number sixteen, I'm like. Oh, I didn't even pick up on what was going on there. Like in the background, there's always, there's like every scene, there's like five jokes. But the difference between this and something that can be obnoxious, like a, like a Deadpool type movie, right? All those jokes are vocal, right? It's all words. Mel Brooks usually has one or two jokes that are written as far as vocal. And then there's like five things going on in the background that he's set up in the frame in such a perfect way that as you rewatch it, when you're like, okay, I know the lines, I've got that memorized. And then you start picking out things in the background. You're like, oh my God, like there's so much good stuff here. Like it's just, it's absolutely phenomenal. Everyone is, I mean, Gene Wilder, just a great comedic presence in this and the kind of running, I I love that you mispronounced Frankenstein because it's like this great running joke. 
joke in the movie, right? It's Frankenstein. Like it just goes, and it's Igor, like back and forth, this whole thing. So it's perfect that you that you can't pronounce Frankenstein. For <laughs> I don't know what's, Fantastic. what's wrong with me. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> but it's like, it's just, it's just a truly, truly great comedy. Like it has, it has no fat on it. It's, it's got Madeline Kahn, which makes everything better. Yeah. Like she's just, she's perfect in this. This is maybe her, my favorite comedic performance from her. And that is saying a lot because she's always great. Um, and it's just like, it's the perfect, for me, it's the perfect amount of Mel Brooks. Like I love Mel Brooks, but if I show someone, say, Spaceballs, <laughs> I can understand them not go, not loving it or being like, okay, this is kind of obnoxious. Like I'm not really into this, but young Frankenstein just is so perfectly balanced. And actually I would argue that like the performances here, not just from a comedy perspective, but from an acting perspective are all tremendous. Like I think Gene Wilder gives, he's probably my favorite performance of Dr. Frankenstein in anything. Like I think it's, you get the madness, you get the humor, you get the lust, you get the love. I mean, you get all of it. And I think, you know, you mentioning, you know, it's hard to find comedies on these top lists. And it makes me wonder if it's not because people don't respect comedies. There's some of that. There's some disrespect going on. But also comedies are so personal and so subjective that I bet when people vote on these things, you'll get a bunch of comedies getting like one or two votes. You'll have like 50 comedies getting one or two votes, but not everybody agrees on like, what's the, like if you were to ask a hundred people, Hey, what's the greatest comedy of all time? How many people do you think would agree? Like two, three, like, it's just, it's so, it's such a private thing. It's such like, what makes us laugh, I think is maybe the greatest mystery in film. Like, cause everybody, like some people think Step Brothers is the funniest movie ever made. Right. Some people think uh, History of the World Part One is the funniest <laughs> movie ever made. And when you ask people to tell them, OK, why do you think it's funny? Other than like, well, I like these jokes, these particular jokes. It's hard to really boil down what it is that truly makes a great comedy. I think it's much harder to understand than something like like what makes a great romance or a great rom-com or a great drama. I think we have we have language for that and it's harder for us to talk about why something is funny cuz usually the answer is cuz I laughed. Yeah. It's just funny. I don't know what to tell you. Like I think it's hilarious. End of sentence and that's it. Yeah, it's just harder to pin down somebody's like uh, sense of humor because it's more unique than mm-hmm. some people may think. So, you know, um, like I that question you just asked, like, you know, what is like I ask myself, what is my favorite comedy of all time? And like I'm having a hard time figuring that out. Like in making my list, like one I think the comedy that right now because this is again this is like a situation where it's like well tomorrow I could say something different, sure. but right now. Mm-hmm. I'd rank as my favorite comedy of all time. <laughs> I'd I'd say it'd be Finding Francis from uh, uh, um, that season of um, um, Why am I forgetting oh, Nathan? Nathan for Nathan you. for you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's like, a great it's a great hour of comedy. That it's incredible because it's it's presented as like a it's like a feature film. It's like it, it is technically feature length, right? They screened it in a theater, so I I can count yeah. it as a movie, although it's a TV movie, whatever. Okay, Twin Peaks, easy. Listen, <laughs> I just talked with somebody about that in the last episode, but you know that's a longer discussion for another uh, series, but. Yes, that to me works because I. It's not only hilarious; it has some of the best jokes ever in that movie. But I also connect with it on like a more like emotional level, which is totally unexpected. So I guess for me, I find comedy 
and just what I am emotionally attached to. And to me, that's sure. that's the way, you know, in for me. But, you know, for other people, it's Step Brothers. Yeah. And I love Step Brothers. Meanwhile, I am emotionally attached to Terry Gar looking beautiful and rolling <laughs> around go, in that's hay. That's your attachment right I mean, there. Yeah, yeah, good enough. <laughs> Um, we don't want to uh, move past uh, The Apartment or Passion of Joan of Arc, two of which I have not seen. I have The Apartment mm-hmm. on Blu-ray. I've been threatening to watch it great. Uh, You'll love it. forever. And I've had so many opportunities to watch it. Like my local draft house plays it every year for New Year's and I never oh, end, nice. up, end up going. Maybe I'll go this year. We'll see. But I know it's great. I know I need to watch it. Same with uh, Joan of Arc. It's 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 one of those a separation things where I know it's going to be fantastic, but I know it's going to be heavy too, right? Am I am I right on Joan of Arc? Oh, you're right on Joan of Arc. I was like the apartment. I mean, apartment has a few heavy moments. Yeah, the I know that's going to be lighter. Like, yeah, it's much lighter. Honestly, you could this one of the the apartments one of those movies you could put on at any time okay. and just be like, oh, this is nice. Like there there's some weird moments of heaviness in there with that kind of take you by surprise. But just seeing those two movie stars together, like it's just, it's just lovely. Like you just, you just kind of go with it, and it's like just a really wonderful two hours. Like it's a movie I've watched three or four times, and every time I forget how like qualitatively good it is. Like because you you watch and you're like, that's a fun movie. That's a it's a comedy, and these two people in love. It's great. I'm having a good time. But like if you look at it again from like this technical level, it's also just really a really well made movie. Like just 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 tremendous stuff. So that's like maybe on this entire list, that's maybe one of the easiest recommendations okay. to give. Is okay. the apartment like yeah. for anybody? Anyone would love that movie. Like if you don't, if you like the apartment, if you watch the apartment and like your I hated that, I'm, <laughs> I have questions. Like I'm like, wow, really? So yeah, it's good. But Passion of Jonah Arc. This is what I'll say. Passion of Jonah Arc has the single greatest s- single performance in a film ever made. Wow, she is incredible, and it's a you know basically a silent film. It's the oldest film on my list by far, and yeah. it is heart-wrenching and terrifying and brutal and just a stunning, stunning performance. Yeah, Maria Falconetti uh, plays Joan, and oh my God, like it is every once in a while you watch a movie and you see a performance and it kind of reorients you to how powerful film and acting can be. And that is what this performance is. Like, I could never make a top 25 list without this on here somewhere. Because I remember, like, I saw it for the first time maybe two years ago. And I was like, okay, let me sit down and do my homework. Let me watch uh, The Passion of Joan of Arc. Okay. And then I watched it. And within, like, 10 minutes, I was like, oh, this is going to... And you, sometimes you just watch a movie and you just know you're about to have a goddamn experience. Yeah. Like, it's not just, like, this is not just going to be this, like, hour and a half to two and a half hours of, like, okay, I watched that movie, and okay, now I I could check it out my list, and uh, I did that. But this is, like, oh, this is going to be impactful. And it's a, it's a movie that I've only watched twice, because it is very heavy. And, of course, it's not a movie you can have on in the background, because it's, like, it's kind of all visual. It's not, you know, it's not something you can just listen to as you're doing other stuff. Like it does require a great deal of focus, but it is so rewarding of that focus. Like I cannot recommend this enough. 
There you go. I'll, I will watch it. I promise. I'll watch it. Make a lot of promises on this episode. Um, you do, yes. Before we move on, Blue Velvet, David Lynch. I just something I wanted to ask yeah. you. Um, just glancing at your list again, um, are there any films or are there any like uh, uh, directors who show up twice? Is it just like, is it, I mean, I, it, I, I kind of impose this rule on myself. Yeah, I was going to ask you about one. this rule because I know, yeah. I think it was like Manish on our discord mentioned it like, and I know I'm trying to abide by it. Like, and not everybody does. I mean, this is like, whatever, it's a guideline, What you can do whatever you, the hell you want right. folks. But yeah, is so um, yeah, that you said it, it's a rule. You're approaching it like, okay, one film per director, right? Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause like, you know, if I didn't, you know, I could have three David Lynch movies. Yeah. I could have a couple Spielberg movies. Uh, you know, uh, Hitchcock makes an appearance here. Del Toro, Kubrick. I mean, it's like, so I wanted to get the most range I could out of this 25. Cause you know, yeah. Is it hard to come up with these lists? Yeah, absolutely. But like when you've watched as many movies as weirdos like you and I have, yeah. 25 is like a really small number and you don't want to take up like 10% of your list with one, you know, with one fucking white guy, uh, <laughs> director. And you're like, let's, let's branch out a little bit here. So yeah. So this is, this is the only David Lynch on here. You could certainly make arguments for things like Mulholland Drive. Um, anything but Dune, basically, you could make an argument for in my mind. It's uh, the only so, one of his I haven't seen yet. I'm saving myself for, uh, for that new 4K Arrow release. And I, oh, it, it's it, coming. If, yep. if I'm going to watch a bad movie, a quote unquote bad movie, I don't know yet, then I want to watch it in the highest resolution possible. So, <laughs> do yeah. you? I do. <laughs> don't. I've already pre ordered it. It's coming. Um, okay. All right. Yeah. I, I'll just quickly say, like, I am having that like I I do want to do like one movie per director and I'm having that argument in my head of like which Lynch in particular I want to put on there. I kind of feel like I'm going to go Lost Highway because I feel like that's a great choice. That to me has all the maybe the most Lynch movie of all time. Exactly. (laughs) I think I love it because it has so much Lynch in it. Like you could look at that movie and say, oh, that is him. In and like that is that the, he everything he's done in his career you can see in Lost Highway so that's but other but then tomorrow I could say Mulholland Drive and then yeah and then if I'm like whacked out of my head uh, uh, Inland Empire which I also love so <laughs> yeah yeah there you go well, yeah okay. there's yeah it's it's there's tough. so many good choices with Lynch I mean like you know it's not a very Lynchian movie but like Elephant Man is also a really good film it's amazing like it's yeah. it's the most straightforward of his movies probably that and what's it called the straight story straight story those yeah are the, those are the two that are like very upfront Blue Velvet to me has this perfect mix of a narrative I can follow and it feeling like a David Lynch movie right because there's a lot of movies later in his career where you're like oh yeah you don't give a shit if people understand your movies at all you have no interest in, which i love that he has no interest in catering to anybody like i love that he refuses to like talk about his movies like when people are like hey what's this mean he's like i don't know figure it out like i i love that attitude but but blue velvet is one that's a fairly straightforward narrative and it's it's such a such a brilliant takedown of small town america um like it literally starts with like unearthing horrors in a manicured garden like this is exactly what the movie is about and just like you know i think uh mclaughlin and dern are both wonderful i think rosalini is heartbreaking in this movie and i think dennis hopper is maybe this is maybe the one of the most terrifying characters i've ever seen on screen like regardless of type of movie regardless of genre performance like 
he is a character, Frank Booth is a character that just completely unnerves me. And it's actually hard to pinpoint exactly why. Like, there's a bunch of reasons that you can point out. But even with all of those things that happen, these events that happen in the narrative, it doesn't really explain how creepy and dangerous this performance is from Dennis Hopper. Like, it's just kind of, it's one for the record books. This is one for the ages. And there's so many performances like that in this movie to the point that there's a lot of people I've met who watch this and they don't like it because it is, the acting is way, way over the top. Yeah. Right? Laura Dern's performance is at 50 on a scale of one to 10. Like it is just off the charts, but you know, there's that whole stupid thing that goes around Twitter, like blank understood the assignment, (laughs) right? This is Laura Dern in this movie. She knew exactly what kind of movie that David Lynch wanted to make. And it just like, so this is the perfect amalgamation of a type of movie I like and a David Lynch movie. And it kind of all comes wrapped up in this kind of perfect balanced movie for me. And, but yeah, you could make an argument for many David Lynch movies. Like it's, but this is maybe of his Lynch movies, like not counting things like Straight Story and Elephant Man. This is like the least exhausting. Um, So it's something I can, like, I don't know if I, you know, Mulholland Drive, it's beautiful, stunning to look at, but there's a lot to it. Um, And Inland Empire, good lord. (laughs) I'm I'm tired just, you mentioned that word, (laughs) I immediately wanted a nap. I was like, "I, I can't, I can't do this. And it's a great movie. I think it's incredible. I don't think I understand. 8% of it, but I did really enjoy the process of it. Whereas Blue Velvet is a movie that I feel like I understand about 90 to 95% of this. And it's, it's easily accessible in a way for fans, not just fans of Lynch, but fans of movies in general. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point because as much as I love Lost Highway, that is exhausting by the end. Exhausting in a great way as, as Lynch, uh, as Lynch is. I mean, um, I talked about uh, Twin Peaks season three in the last episode. And um, uh, I mean, there are moments in that where it's like, yeah, this guy has no uh, regard for narrative. And it's a beautiful thing to see. No, not at all. Narrative. (laughs) What does not care? What's that? Unimportant nonsense. No, (laughs) get out of here. Um, okay, next five. 15, Do the Right Thing from 1989. Chinatown at 14 from 1974. Throne of Blood at 13 uh, from 1957. Raging Bull, uh, number 12 from 1980. And number 11, Alien from 1979. Um, only one of these I haven't seen is Throne of Blood. I know. I'm behind in my mm-hmm. Kurosawa. I've only seen a handful of Kurosawa, but... Well, it's such a, there's such, there's so many options with Kurosawa and so many of them are either like phenomenal or like they're known to be great. So you're just like, there's, and there's a bit of pressure when it comes to Kurosawa. Yeah, that's a good point. It's interesting though. And I think it comes from, you know, being the, like the first movie on the Criterion Collection, right? Seven Samurai. That's the, the big one that always, always stands out. But like, I would argue that Kurosawa, in a lot of ways, is a very populist filmmaker. Like, if you watch his movies, they're, like, very action-heavy. They're not... They're not... uh, This sounds, like, negative, but it's not. They're not subtle films, right? They are very in-your-face. And Throne of Blood is no exception. Throne of Blood is a... um, It's an adaptation of uh, Shakespeare's Macbeth. um, And it is, by far the best film version of any Shakespearean play I have ever seen. 
It is incredible. It is beautiful to look at. There are scenes with the witches in here that are some of the most striking images I've ever seen. Maybe my favorite death scene in the history of movies, of every movie that I've ever seen. It's just like, Kurosawa, like from a visual standpoint, I mean, this is like, you know, everyone knows this, right? But the man is was a master of the visual form. Right, like a great storyteller as well. But just when you talk about setting frames and looking at things in interesting ways and having things stand out, but not in a way where it takes away from the narrative he's telling, he was so incredible at this. There are a lot of great directors who are like, visually, that is incredible. And now I am not paying attention to the movie <laughs> anymore because I'm so distracted by it. Right? Yeah. Kurosawa movie is not like that at all. It is all in service of the story that he was telling. And Throne of Blood is like that too. It is a movie that I, um, a friend of mine named Webb recommended it to me and uh, it was on Criterion. So I blind bought it and I was like, God, I hope this is good or I'm going to yell at you. And then I put it on and you just, it's one of those ways you know within like 10 minutes, you're like, oh, I am definitely picking up what this movie is putting down. I am feeling this. And I, you know, obviously like Kurosawa was great. The, but for years, the only one I had seen was Seven Samurai. And it's incredible, right? Like you watch it and you're like, yeah, this is a piece of art. This is incredible. And yet, because it is so well thought of, sometimes it can be intimidating to go watch more of his movies. Because it's just like, okay, okay, it's work. I got to really sit down. But I found that like I've seen five or six of his movies now and none of them feel like work. Once you sit down and actually watch them, they are really strangely approachable films. So this is, and even if you've never read Macbeth, you don't know the story behind it, this is still a great movie to watch. Like some adaptations, you're like, well, I really got to know about Taming of the Shrew if I'm going to watch 10 Things I Hate About You or whatever it is. This is not like that. This is just, you could have no knowledge of Shakespeare and walk into this totally blind and still just have a phenomenal time with it. Uh, I'm glad you brought up, uh, you brought up uh, Kurosawa was like one of the best you know, visual uh, uh, directors ever, right? And it, uh, Throne of Blood sits right next to Raging Bull, made by uh, an upstart, Kotz Corsese. Um, yeah, so, yeah, pretty decent director, pretty that decent guy. Decent director, also pretty good with the camera. Um, I, I, I bring this up only because it's just been on my mind. Like, I've been reading... Uh, uh, Roger Ebert's book, uh, Scorsese, you know, where it just has a bunch mm-hmm. of uh, uh, Scorsese reviews and like interviews. And like, I am now wanting to like rewatch like a lot of Scorsese movies, and Raging Bull is like at the top. Because, oh, like, we've had, so we, we were just talking about like picking the best of a certain director and. Like I'm gonna, this, was, this might have been the hardest choice. Yeah, I was going to say, is- <laughs> it, 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 I, I, I'm I, like I said, I'm going with favorites, and for me, an easy favorite for me is like The Departed. Like that's going to be an easy pick for me because I have sure. so much affection for that movie. But then, like again, if I were forced to do best, I'd be like, I have, I bet, fuck, <laughs> Raging yeah, Bull. I mean, is it Goodfellas? Is it yeah, Raging a- Bull? Is it Silence? Is it? I mean, there's just there's so many choices. I mean, I used to do a show just about directors, and usually we took a month for each director. And Scorsese got two months because there yeah. are like legitimately twenty movies that you could easily make an argument for. This would be anyone else's best movie. Like it's just. 
there's some incredible, incredible stuff. Even something more recent, like Bringing Out the Dead, which nobody saw because it happened to be released in like one of the greatest years for cinema ever, yeah, 1999. And but like you watch it and you're like, this is in so many of his movies you feel like this. You're like, this is a master at work. I mean, Taxi Driver. I mean, it's like there's so many options when it comes to Scorsese. For me, this one stands out because I think it is his only movie with a completely unlikable set of characters. And yet, it still works. Like, Goodfellas is about people who do terrible things, but they're very charming. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You could even make a a case that Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver, there's some moments of charm there, right? There's some reasons you could see why someone would agree to go out on a date with Travis Bickle, even though you know, like, deep down, this is not a good man. (laughs) This is not someone you should spend time with, right? Yeah. But Raging Bull, I mean, none of these characters are good people. They are horrific, like, to to watch go through life. And yet, the direction is so capable, and De Niro's performance is for the ages. This is one of, this is one of the greatest single performances ever. Like, I talked about Maria Falconetti. This is on that level. Like, this is, like, completely inhabiting a character, especially now when you can watch it in the kind of oeuvre of De Niro movies. Like, you've seen who he is and the other things he's done and how he can be really charming, you know, uh, in things like uh, in things like Goodfellas, especially. He's, like, a very charming character in that. And even in a movie like Heat, you know, it's a, like you, oh, yeah. you get why people want to be around him. And this is like, oh, you are the most toxic individual that I could imagine being around. And you find your, it's interesting because you find yourself, if you put yourself in it, you're like, I need to get away from this man. But there is a certain like morbid curiosity of like, where is this story going to go? Like, how do you start a story with a monster and expect you to stick around for a couple hours? And that is how great Scorsese is, is that he can take a character. This character is not by the end. You don't like him. He's not someone that grows on you and you're like, well, he's misunderstood. No, he is even more of a monster than he was in the first frame. Yeah. And yet I find myself going back to this time and time and time again. Yeah. Oh. And uh, and just uh, I just want to mention the technical aspect of like just the boxing scenes alone. Like if people don't know. And I might get this number wrong, but I'm not going to edit it out or fact check it later. Um, but I, I want to say like Scorsese mentioned, like he spent like weeks on like constructing these and shooting these uh, boxing scenes, in particular, like the one that the most iconic one is like the fast cuts and uh, mm-hmm. uh, how he was like um, very much influenced by the psycho shower scene and mm-hmm. yeah just uh, like like really- and that and that blood on the ropes that's also something like he saw yeah. in real life and decided to put it on screen like he went to a boxing match and he's not like a big surprise Scorsese not a big sports yeah fan. yeah it's not that's not who he is <laughs> so he was like really disturbed by this by seeing like two grown men pummel each other half to death and seeing the blood spray and all this but I love that he took that horror and was like I gotta put that in my movie let's go let's let's do this I'm ready you know and it's like it's just an incredible piece of work and you know I had mentioned De Niro and like all because throughout the movie like he plays a boxer and then you'd show him late in life and he gained a bunch of weight and that's all real weight they didn't use a fat suit they didn't stuff anything apparently like he went off to Italy and just went on an eating tour of the country yeah and 
And Scorsese okayed this, and this is another reason why I love Marty so much. Is this like, he's like he's a humanist, right? So he he let De Niro do that, and then he paid his crew for that time, right? For the months that he was gone, those people had a job, and those people got paid to do nothing, like That's to great. just sit around and wait for De Niro to come back. Uh, so I love that about Marty. Like every time I hear a story about Martin Scorsese, it's always like it's always another great thing about him. Whether it's like Marvel sucks or I pay my workers, <laughs> all of those things are great. <laughs> I'm glad you put that in there. <laughs> Speed of great directors, great personalities, great filmography. Spike Lee, um, who I just say like. I I still need to see so much more of his work. Mm. Like I just saw Malcolm X for the first time last oh. year. And that almost got this spot. I know. Like I was it's- I was gonna say like I love do the right thing, do the right thing. I'm pretty sure we'll make my top twenty five. But Malcolm X give, gives it a run for its money because That's- when Spike Lee's on, he is fucking on. Even Del Five Bloods, my favorite film of last year. Yeah. With time, I'm sure that'll be up there too. But. What can we say about do the right thing? And if I was if I was making an argument for like greatest genre movies, like Inside Man might make that cut. I yes, mean, I think yeah. like he's made, like I think people forget not only how long his career has been, but how much that man works. Like he's like Soderbergh level. Like he's just constantly yeah. filming and constantly getting stuff done. So I've seen probably fifteen of his movies, and there's probably still ten of his movies that i haven't seen like he works a lot you know and some of that uh, works out for him and some of that becomes you know his remake of old Boy. i was gonna say old so Boy. you never you know <laughs> you never know what you're gonna get really uh but do the right thing makes the cut for me because it is a rare movie that is both prescient and modern um, and a lot of that is because our country is so messed up and backwards and terrifying to live in for black people um But I remember, like, I saw this when I was a teenager for the first time, and it just kind of, you know, growing up, like, white and from the suburbs just kind of blew my mind apart. Like, oh, my God, like, is this real? And and it was so interesting watching it because my background's Italian. So if you've watched this movie, you know Italians maybe not put in the greatest light in this movie. So it's a little – it definitely took me aback because that's before I kind of understood the kind of – racist undertones of Italian neighborhoods like I just didn't realize it because I just wasn't I didn't live in New York I wasn't in you know stereotypical Italian neighborhoods and I'd never kind of heard this back and forth so I watched it and I was like oh wow I don't is that really what it's like and then every time I watch it it still feels like it could have been made yesterday like you know there is a scene where a person is taken down by the police and restrained and dies because he couldn't breathe. Yeah. Like, if that's not this this decade of being black in America, I don't know what is, right? So the fact that this movie still has that kind of power is really... It just it just floors me every time I watch it. It's also, like, it's, it's a sexy movie. It's a funny movie. It's action-packed. There's so much going on. Like, it's just... And again, much like, you know, when we talked about Citizen Kane... Like, this is, like, his second movie. Second yeah. or third movie. Like, he was, like, he was a young, young man when he made this. And it does not feel, like, some movies feel like young men's movies, right? The kind of, like, it's rushed, it's sloppy, but there's passion behind it. But this feels really, for the topic, actually kind of restrained 
in the way he's telling the story. And it also, it's one of those movies, it's the oldest thing in the book, right? New York is a character in this movie, blah, blah, blah. You hear that in many, many movies, but truly in in Do the Right Thing, that neighborhood is a, it's alive uh, and you feel it. It is an actual character in this movie. If you transplanted this movie to any other neighborhood, I don't think this movie works at all. Like it's just like this this is a fantasy world. This doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But putting it where where it lives, where he lives, you can you can sense the genuineness of do the right thing. And that is something really rare in film. Because all film is a trick, right? It's all fooling you. It's something that's not actually happening, and I'm gonna throw it on a big lighted screen and you're gonna fucking feel something. Right? But if you're really good at it, it doesn't feel that way. And do the right thing never feels like a lie. It right. feels like that is his lived experience, and we get the privilege of living it for that two hours and be able to walk away from it. It's just it's just a powerful, incredible, funny, dramatic, almost perfect movie from Spike Lee. Like it's yeah. you know, Malcolm X is wonderful. It is, you know, it does have the length of a biopic. It's got a lot of those things maybe working against it, but it's also got Denzel. Um so that really helps it. And you could definitely make an argument for that one very easily to be in this spot. But Do the Right Thing is also the Spike Lee movie I probably watched the most. It's the one I keep going back to over and over again. Yeah. That's a thing like do the right thing i i could very well put it on like tonight maybe and then watch it again but malcolm mm-hmm. x as much as i love it now like that's going to be like more like a weighted yeah. you know emotional experience. i mean that was that was released back in the days of double vhs tapes that's like, right i remember those, that so. yeah yes. <laughs> um before we move on to the next five we gotta mention chinatown we gotta mention alien um okay. i mean chinatown uh you know uh, director of the film now you know you know you, know, you gotta <laughs> roman polanski right you gotta you gotta mention he's a creep yeah he's is he's a monster of a human being yeah. and also a great director like there are probably two other of his movies that i considered putting on here instead of chinatown um like repulsion i think is phenomenal it's yeah, great baby yeah. one of the greatest horror movies ever made but chinatown is the single greatest screenplay ever written yeah end of sentence it doesn't get any better and of course you know you've got jack nicholson in the lead role probably his best performance um you could make arguments for the shining um one flew over the cuckoo's nest but to me it's jake giddis like that is really like the best thing he's ever done all the performances in it are incredible. It's interesting that I love the screenplay so much, but if I had to explain to someone the plot of this movie, I would struggle. Like, I know it in my head, yeah. but actually putting it into words and explaining it. And that's why the screenplay is so great, because by the end of the movie, you understand not only the underlying reason all this has happened, but all the crazy twists and turns that happen, all the, let's say, family drama uh, that occurs in Chinatown, which on paper should not work. No way should this work. It should be laughable. It should be stupid. And yet when it happens, it is such a shocking, debilitating moment and so wonderfully performed by these actors that it's just... Man, it just really hits so hard. Like, the only thing that throws me off in this movie, and this is my own damage. So when I was a kid, I used to love the animated Hobbit movie. Mm, um, okay. And the and the guy who's the voice of Gandalf is our villain in this movie. Ah. So every time Houston talks, I'm like, 
Gandalf? Like that is my immediate, <laughs> that's my first reaction to him. But obviously you get over that very quickly. And this is a movie like, yes, you know, he's a monster. He raped a child. Like there's no getting around that. Uh, and this is a really hard one for me because this is one of my favorite movies ever made. Like not only best, but like so watchable to me. And I got to like, I got to find a way like, okay, am I giving money to this monster? Can I watch this with a clean conscience? It's it's rough, but it is, I mean, it's definitely a movie really, really worth watching. It is a masterclass in drama and especially in, in script writing wise. Like this is, this is the perfect film in terms of that. And it's just phenomenal it's amazing yeah i mean and to that point about polanski being just you know a terrible 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 person like i am gonna have to deal with that like on my list i'm sure because Hmm. um it might be chinatown might be something else it might be another film made by a terrible person but i have to just kind of everywhere man i know i have to (laughs) confront i have to you know, mention it, confront it, and then also accept right. the fact that, you know, it's not only a Polanski movie. I mean, the screenwriters, the actors, right. like, there's a lot more to that than just the name of a rapist on the movie. But it still has yeah. to be said. I mean, but, yeah. I'm sure you'll be fine as long as your movie isn't Jeepers Creepers. I think. I think oh, you'll be okay. let me make That's... a change on this list here. Uh, no. <laughs> let me cross that out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Alien. Ridley Scott. Yes. Um,. I mean, you're gonna make Matt. Uh, you're gonna make Matt Curione pretty happy having Alien on the yes, list. Yes. Um, but uh, what, what can we say about Alien? I, I. It's one of those movies for me. I know it is like perfect. It's. I think it's as perfect as it can be. And now, the more I'm thinking about it, the more I'm like talking about it. The more, will it make my top twenty-five? Personally, it might. But I. Right. And I'll just say, maybe this is just my deal, you know, my personal feeling towards it. Like, <laughs> for me, Ridley Scott is one of those perfectionists. Like, of course, that's that, yeah. that that's his whole thing. You know, he wants to make things, you know, perfect, technically perfect. And to me, that like humanity uh, that I want in a movie kind of leaves. But I think Alien. Oh, is I can see that. But Alien, I think to me is like the closest he'll get to having that human connection because. Uh, maybe my favorite like heroine of all time like Ripley uh, in Alien so again that's that, that's just my personal thing with Alien but sure. I mean, obviously it's like one of your favorites of all time it's number 11 yeah but yeah. Talk, talk about Alien yeah I mean I, I love Alien I think it is an almost perfect movie there is one moment in the movie that I would change uh, but I like this so much I have named my pets after alien characters, my pets' names are Jonesy and Ripley. So this That's is amazing, yeah. an important, an important movie for me. Uh, and Jonesy, of course, is a orange tabby, just like in the movie, and he's kind of a jerk, just like <laughs> Jonesy is in the movie. Um, the only moment I would change in this movie, there's a moment near the very end after you like think she thinks that the alien is taken care of, and the the camera kind of leers at her in her underwear uh, for this moment. And I know what he's trying to do. He's trying to show that this is her moment where she is, you know, um, she's most at risk. Right. Yeah. So not only all of her, all of her tools are gone, but her clothing too. But it does feel like Ridley Scott and the male gaze showing us what, what, uh, what Ripley looks like, you know, underneath the suits and all that stuff. And I don't really like that moment. But that aside, you know, you can talk about this as a science fiction movie. You can talk this about a horror movie. You can talk about this more specifically as a haunted house horror movie um and it's just 
he uses shadow and light so well in this movie. The starkness of the Nostromo is its own bit of set dressing for this movie. Like, and it opens that way, right? To show you, to show you exactly where you're going to go in this movie because it is going to become kind of a chase through the ship so it's really smart that the film opens with this like pan across the entire across the entire ship and you get to see that it's like stark but it's also dirty and grungy and it's been used like so you get this idea of them as like almost like like construction workers more than like scientists right uh and it also like it's got bits of great comedy in here you know we talked about harry dean stanton earlier yeah koto in this is maybe my favorite character in the entire movie i love these guys who are just like yeah i'll do it where's my money like that's (laughs) fine as long as you like f you pay me is basically the the entire process for them and it also has some of the most memorable film images ever i mean the the image of the pod opening is like its own type of horror at this point, right? When yeah. you first watch this, or people first watch this, maybe you didn't realize how scary that was. But now, looking back and going through all these alien movies, or Alien versus Predator, if you hate yourself, uh, if you want to watch those movies too, just seeing that pod, that kind of four pieces just fold open is so tense now. Like, just seeing that. When you first watched it, it was like, ooh, what's going to happen? What What is this thing? And now that opens, you're like, oh, my God, here it comes. Like, it, it's, it's become its own. Like, Alien movies has almost become its own genre just in itself because they've made so many of them. And it's yeah. like, you know, and of course, you know, what can you say about the character of Ripley? You know, one of the greatest action characters of all time. Um, I find it interesting that that character was written as a man um, originally. And then, you know... She comes in and just absolutely owns that part. Like, just, just incredible. Uh, you know, and also, like, you know, the, you know, the, the android character is one of the scariest, the scariest, like, kind of banality of evil villains that you'll ever see. It's just like, well, this is what we do as the company. I'm following my orders. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. It doesn't matter what you think. And that is scary. Because that is, because a villain who has passion is someone you can twist. A villain who is just like, no, this is just what we do. I'm totally calm about it. Is absolutely horrifying, um, and also just the just the creature itself. Yeah, like the design of the creature, the xenomorph. It's, I mean, probably the most recognizable monster in film history at this point. I mean, I, I was like, going to say, like now, me thinking about it, you talking about it, I think this has to be on my top twenty-five because I do consider the xenomorph, the alien, like my it's my favorite movie monster ever. Like. Yeah. Forget Frankenstein, werewolf, whatever. And all versions of it, and they're all yeah. different, right? Like yeah. each alien movie, it's a very different. This one is much more. It's like sneaking around and hiding in the shadows, right? And then when you get to aliens, it's like, well, there's a thousand of us, so we're just gonna come after you, yeah, right? And it's just like an Alien Three is its own thing. Like they've all got their own little twists to it. Uh, but this is the beginning, and it's like you watch it, and sometimes you watch older movies, and you're like, I don't get why this was so well thought of and sometimes you watch older movies and you're like oh this was a moment and you could really feel it like i remember watching this like i i think i was one of those people who saw aliens first um because it's like a straight up action movie it's like real easy for a 12 year old boy to watch like it's like oh yeah monsters and guns let's go (laughs) uh maybe you watch the first one you're like oh this is 
this is powerful. Like, there is a lot going on here. And it is one of those movies, again, that really rewards those rewatches. There's there's a lot going on that's not just monster chase, monster kill. There's a lot more going on here. Yeah. And before we move on to the next five, I want to say, like, it's one of those I do love more and more with each watch. But I will say, I kind of, it's one of those movies where I want my memory of it wiped so I can watch it for the first time. Oh, can you imagine? Oh, because even like that chest burst sequence, like oh. I can't remember where I saw it, but like just reading back, maybe it was like a Pauline Kale interview or something, uh, or not an interview, like a review or an essay of hers where she mentions like, yeah, like when that was out, when it was in theaters, it, terrified people like really like yeah. it freaked people you the think fuck he's out. fine you never see it coming exactly like yeah. that's the thing like it's the chest burster has become such a thing now that you look for it right so yeah. like look at everybody when it's going to happen but this you have to understand like this was a totally new property you know this guy had this thing over his face and then they solved the problem they took <laughs> care of that thing and you think everything's fine and they're all having this great dinner they're laughing everyone's cracking jokes and then it happens and it is like oh my god and i remember the first time i saw it i had no idea that was coming wow and i was just like what what <laughs> what is happening right now because that's also an actor who at this point is pretty well known Right. Yeah. This isn't some like nobody character actor that no one's ever heard of. It's like, oh, yeah, it's John Hurt. Like, OK, big deal. And it's like, whoa, it is. And the blood. And I guess and it I always love the story that apparently Ridley didn't tell anybody what they were doing in that sequence. So their reactions are real, just as your reaction as you're watching it is probably very similar. Yeah. And that creates this kind of genuine sense of terror in that moment. God. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, oh, before we move on, I also want to mention this, Dave. I know. I think I said originally it was going to be like an hour, but we're going over. I mean, is, is it okay? Yeah. I mean, you're no, fine. I'm good to go. Okay, yeah, because yeah. we have ten more to go, and I'm good. Just, just, just making sure you're good. Um, I can talk. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> this is fun. I'm good with the length. I just want to make sure we're on the same page. Um, <clears throat> okay, next five. Here we go. Number 10, Halloween from 1978. Number 9, Barry Lyndon from 1975. Number 8, Ito Mama Tambien from 2001. Number 7, Zodiac from 2007. Or actually, was that 2007? Yeah, it was 2007. Yeah. Um, Do you know, this is a stupid thing for me to point out now. Like, I always think of it as a 2006 movie because it was supposed to come out 2006, like end of year 2006, but they pushed it to 2007. There were already too many great movies that year. Like, it's, it's too much. Yeah. <laughs> and then number six, Jaws from 1975. Okay. Since we already mentioned Zodiac, let's talk about Zodiac some more. Um, yeah. I, I remember, I've told this story before, but I mean, it's been a while since I've told it. I, at that point, I was like totally in for uh, Fincher. Obviously, like, I was already like obsessed, as obsessed with Panic Room uh, now. Like as as I am obsessed with that movie now, that level of which uh, of which I'm at, I've always been since like that movie right. came out, Panic Room. I've always been a fan of that movie, and of course this was like I think this is the movie after Panic Room, I think, right? Um, yep. So of course I was hyped. It's like oh, it's a new Fincher movie, guys. We gotta go. So I took my friends to go see Zodiac <laughs> opening weekend, and they came out of it like. Half of them were like, what the fuck, dude? And then the other half was like, it's pretty good. And I was like, you fucking, this is amazing. So I was on board since the beginning. And I think yeah, we've had this discussion on, on your podcast, Dave, like about the my favorite Fincher. 
And uh, I had talked about social network in the last episode. And now we're talking Zodiac. So it's tough for me to mm-hmm. pick what is Oh, yeah. This was this best. may have been the hardest choice for me as far as like a director's work. Because I think, I think David Fincher is a goddamn genius. Um, and he's only made one bad movie. Uh, but he says he didn't make that movie. So I I don't know what you're talking but, about. Like, I, I mean, I could make I could make arguments for Panic Room. I could make arguments for Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Obviously, Zodiac. I mean, it's just there's so many. I mean, you know, and when it came out, Fight Club would probably be on my you know my top list. Like, there's that movie is a movie that has been ruined by its fans, but it's it's actually really fun and has a lot to say. Uh, just don't listen to it. I mean, it sucks because I really like that movie, but I also realize that anyone who really likes that movie is a giant red flag. Um, so there's there's a little difficulty there it, it, it always has to be with a caveat like for me i love fight club but i will say i understand it completely okay yes <laughs> i'm yes, not a toxic yes. fanboy i just want to get that yes, clear yeah. exactly yeah and social network too i could make an argument that is you know they're all five-star movies with zodiac i don't say this about that many movies zodiac is a perfect movie there is nothing 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 i would change in this movie it is the script is incredible obviously the direction is impeccable as it always is because he's such a perfectionist but man the performances here like Gyllenhaal and Robert Downey Jr. I mean just incredible and the guy I'm trying to remember his name now but the guy who's essentially the Zodiac Killer in this is God just an incredible understated weirdly scary performance there like so much that anytime he's in another movie i am immediately leery of him like i don't i don't i don't want to hang out with you you seem dangerous and this is the guy who played the husband in fargo so even when i watch that movie now i'm like hmm, where's the when's he gonna flip the switch when is what is that gonna happen because john carroll lynch by the way john carroll lynch yeah, yeah. absolutely just yeah. just incredible and it's it is also one of those movies that you see this is the second time I've talked shit about Marvel, but you see actors like Robert Downey Jr. and you're like, oh yeah, he used to be an actor. He used to play more than Tony Stark. That was nice. That was that was a fun time for all of us in uh, in 2007. That was or 2009, whatever it was. Uh, that was that was a good time for all of us. And that the basement scene in this movie is an absolute masterclass in suspense without any real stakes. Right? There's no real danger in that sequence. You don't know. There's not any real danger. But as you watch it, like your heart is in your throat and it's a scene that kind of comes out of nowhere, too. Like it's it's not super difficult to make a dramatic scene when something has been building between two characters for two and a half hours. But this is like a brand new character has been introduced and, you know, he's doing his investigation and then he goes down in the basement. And then for a minute there, you're like, oh, we're just going to murder our main character like this this is how this movie ends and it is a horrifying sequence and it just it just makes me wish i kind of want fincher to do like a full-on horror movie because i think he would do an incredible job right yeah there's bits of horror in many of his movies you know gone girl there's definitely horror in that uh girl with the dragon tattoo uh definitely horror in that movie but like he's never done like a full-on horror movie and i think he would just make an incredible one like he just has He's one of those directors that I just feel like he can do any genre. 
Like you put it in front of him and he's going to do the research and he's going to do the work. Like I was listening to the director's commentary on this and he like, you know, he read like six books about the, about the Zodiac Killer and the hunt for him. Like he really knew his stuff. So every choice that he makes in this movie is so purposeful. Like there is a point to every single second in this movie. And you telling your story about, you know, seeing it with these, you know, who are these fucking friends of yours? Jesus Christ. These <laughs> dummies. I'm so glad. I saw this movie alone and I'm so happy I did because everyone I talked to about this movie tells me the exact same story that you did yeah. when they saw it with friends where they're like, yeah, I loved it, but they just thought it was okay. They didn't really like it. And I'm like, oh my God, I would be getting in fights with my friends had that happened. So like, because this is, you know, one of the 10 best movies in film history to me. Like this is absolutely incredible. It is so rare that you see a movie about a serial killer that doesn't traffic in pain. It doesn't it doesn't do that thing that like any if you like true crime stuff, more power to you. I don't because I feel dirty when I like listen to true crime podcasts or watch true crime movies. But this has enough distance and enough horror behind this killings that you never feel like, ooh, let's yeah, let's dig into this this mire and this muck and this evil. It's not about the evil of man it is again it's about that banality about just like yeah i just made a choice one day to do this thing and i did it right there's no reason behind it there's no there's no grand plan there's no big story it's just like what this horrible man did and it's more about the investigation and the the just laser focus to the point of detriment to these men's lives like this zodiac killer never never killed any of these men who were investigating him, but he ruined their lives yeah. because they couldn't let it go. Yeah. And watching that unfold, is really painful. And it's such a, and like, you know, Gyllenhaal weirdly is kind of an underrated actor at this point. Cause he like, most of the stuff he does is relatively subtle. And I would include this performance in here, but like you a hundred percent fully believe that he is this cartoonist throughout this movie like it's just it's just a wonderful wonderful performance and one i think like just about every performance in this should have gotten more accolades than it did but because it's such a it's not like this is your protagonist and we're gonna follow them it kind of bounces back and forth between these storylines and even like i mean i think uh mark ruffalo obviously great in this movie but like maybe the most unsung performance in this movie is anthony edwards Mm, um i think it's just tremendous like the relationship between ruffalo and edwards in this movie is maybe my favorite like cop relationship uh, that I've seen in terms of like feeling real and feeling like truly genuine. Like, you know, is it as good as, you know, Murtaugh and Riggs uh, <laughs> from Lethal Weapon? Maybe not, but that's such a different type of movie. But like everything in this, like, really, really hits home and really just has such pinpoint accuracy that you just can't help but be like kind of drug along by the passage of time shown in Zodiac. Yeah, we could talk about this movie for hours, like literally. But like one point I want to make before we move on is I like that you mentioned like that true crime genre, right? And I never think of Zodiac as like a true crime movie in the, in the sense of like what today we consider like true crime, right? And I think maybe uh, I'm assuming people do see it as that, obviously, because I think that's what that is a reason why it's like being more um uh it's being more held up as uh, regarded as a great classic you know masterpiece now than it did you know in 2007 mm-hmm. um but yeah I, to that point like 
okay, like the first hour of the film, like you see the killings on screen, like you get affected by that. But then the second half of that movie, it's just like, yeah, the investigators, like you're saying, like their lives are ruined by this by this man or, or these men like these killings and that to me is like the most fascinating thing forget the murders you know, well, you know yeah, I mean the more murders are important right don't, don't misquote me on that folks don't forget them but don't, for, don't forget yeah. the murders but don't focus on them yeah. in that film by the end it's just the ruining of these men and it's fascinating to see especially Jill in the Hall like his arc from beginning to end that's why I love that movie. That's why I love Zodiac. Yeah, and it's yeah. all because they can't walk away. Exactly. They just yeah. physically can't give it up. It's not like he is even continuing this process. They just like they are so passionate about it that they ruin their own lives willingly. Like yeah. they're just like, I know that this is going to destroy my job. I know that it's going to destroy my marriage, and yet I just can't let this go. Exactly. So Oof, Zodiac. Um, got a lot to think about when I get to pick my Fincher. <laughs> um, Good luck. Okay, another another filmmaker that has a lot of masterpieces uh, under his belt, uh, but you picked one of them, uh, Barry Lyndon by Kubrick. Okay. Yeah, this is such a hard choice. I mean, The Shining, 2001. I mean, it's just like there's so Doctor many Strange Love. Doctor Strange Love. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. But, uh, but Barry Lyndon, Barry Lyndon really stands out to me from his from his other work. Um, I this movie is. I don't think people get how fun Barry Lyndon is. Yeah, it is a really fun movie. It's really long, and it feels like it is a period piece in a sense. But it's a movie about assholes. Yeah. It's a movie about people just being needlessly cruel to one another for three hours. And if any, if you know me at all, you should know that this is exactly what I would want out of a movie. Like it is, and it also takes an actor who is, let's be generous, is not a great actor. Ryan O'Neill, not. I mean, he's been bad in many things, and Kubrick somehow harnesses this himbo energy that Ryan O'Neill <laughs> gives off in every area of his life. And cast him in the perfect role. Like, it's weird to think of a movie set so far away from Ryan O'Neill's time and place in life, but it still feels like typecasting. It feels like you just took Ryan O'Neill and put him in this time and like, yeah, that's exactly who he would be. And of course, like from a technical perspective, it's Kubrick, right? The man has never made a movie that isn't technically at a very bare minimum proficient. Like everything is expert level done. Yeah. I mean, like I just, you know, and there's like four or five movies you could pick from from Kubrick and you would get absolutely, I mean, Eyes Wide Shut. I mean, there's just, there's so, so many options here and there's no wrong answers. Again, another director who apparently was kind of a monster on set, yeah. um, but did get uh, some pretty great results, I guess. I don't know if it's worth it, but he... He did do some pretty, I mean, if I was going to not adhere to that rule of one director, there'd be at least three Kubrick movies on my top 25. Like it just, it's just like the man just, he just nothing but five star movies. That's all he did yeah. for his career. And, and some of it probably is because of the perfectionism. Some of it is because he really took his time making these movies. Like he didn't make a lot of films throughout his career. Like he would go years just building these sets and focusing on what story he wanted to tell next like i mean and it i struggled not to put 2001 on here because it is it's one of the most revolutionary films ever made 
Like, it's a movie that, like, on no level should work. Like, this is, like, a pure art piece. And talk about, like, not spoon-feeding your audience. Like, <laughs> oh, no, we're just going to go. And you're going to figure it out as it goes along. Or you're not. I don't really care. So we're just going to go with it. 2001 is that movie. So that very easily could have could have made my list. But Barry Lyndon, again, is it's the Kubrick movie I've watched the most. Um, it's the one I just keep going back to. Because not only is it really, really, really good, but it's also like easily his most fun movie like i could just like sit and i'm like it's one of those movies that you know there's those movies where if you watch 10 minutes okay you're in for the long haul now because it just hooks you and barry linden is that movie for me if i make the mistake of watching more than five minutes of this movie i'm in here for three and a half hours (laughs) like okay i guess i'm not doing anything else tonight i'm just gonna sit down and enjoy my time with barry linden so (laughs) i I mentioned i saw barry linden for the first time two years ago in a theater i saw for the first time and it was in a theater um blown away by it and i have the criterion i will rewatch it It, it's it's going to end up being up there with like the other kubrick's like the ones you just mentioned and and then yeah just that decision of which kubrick to put on my list i don't know i the one i watched most recently was dr strangelove and i'm still just in awe of that movie of just how it's incredible i think that's the first kubrick movie i ever saw it might be mine too and it is not indicative i think of the rest of his work like it doesn't it doesn't feel like a kubrick movie because you don't expect a director like kubrick also another one of those have a flaw directors like you should not be this good at comedy like that is a farcical physical comedy and if you look at his other movies that is not kubrick that's not what he does but it's a it's like the best version of that you can possibly imagine exactly oh it's amazing um speaking of amazing halloween by good old john carpenter another another one of those directors who i'm like Mm. which which another tough choice exactly like so you picked halloween why halloween uh because it's the greatest horror movie ever made period end of sentence there's no better horror movie ever made it started an entire genre um and and yet it's better than anything else in said genre like you reach the pinnacle like yeah there were slasher movies before halloween but this is really what drove it into the public consciousness and i think you know i'm trying to remember did did his did his wife help write the movie did he write it trying to remember oh, let's see Crew. um oh deborah hill yeah she wrote it okay yeah um, yeah, yeah i was gonna say yes yes yeah hill and both hill and carpenter they wrote it together and they had this innate understanding of the terror of no reason yeah um, it's why i cannot stand the rob zombie versions of these movies <laughs> oh boy it's because i mean there are many reasons but um the biggest reason for me is what's scary about michael myers is you can't talk to him you can't this never could have been stopped this is a boy from a suburb a harmless suburb who just one day picked up a knife and killed his sister there wasn't a reason he wasn't abused there was no molestation it was just like it happened and we don't know why and there will never be a reason why right as much as the other sequels maybe try to like go back and be like oh the cult of thorn or you know whatever uh, which has its own fun to it i can enjoy that but i don't think any halloween movie will ever reach the original like it just it's exactly. a it's a perfect horror movie it's also like jamie lee curtis gets a lot of credit as the scream queen does not get enough credit as just a great performance here like 
you can you can sit around and complain about maybe the other performances of the teenagers here. There's a certain stylistic choice that is being made by several of these actors, right? Yeah. Uh, but Jamie Lee Curtis, the one you're supposed to care about, you immediately do. Like within, basically in her introduction, you're like, oh, I really like her. I hope she's going to be okay. <laughs> like, because you kind of know what kind of movie you're walking into. Um, and that, the arc of that character is wildly impactful. Because she starts, she starts out as, you know, obviously this teenage girl who is very meek and doesn't really stand up for herself and lets people kind of run over her and not ever stand up and be like, no, don't do that. I'm my own person. And by the end of this, through this trauma, she has learned eventually, you find out, especially in sequels, that she's powerful enough to fight back, right? And honestly, like we talked about The Exorcist being one of the scariest movies of all time. I don't know that anything on first watch has ever messed me up as much as the closet scene in Halloween. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, it is just, like, it's just essentially this disembodied hand with a giant knife coming at you and there's nothing you can do. And there's a moment where you think, like, oh, maybe she's safe. And then it just kind of busts through the slats of this, like, old-style closet door. And it, man, it still works today. Like, I watch it and it still gets me. You know, and also like, you know, the performance of uh, Donald Pleasance here is just another one kind of for the books here. Like he he is saddled with some difficult dialogue in the sense that's like, you know, he has to say the most extreme things. Right. He has to basically tell you this is the devil incarnate and yeah. make you believe it. But that like slight wildness in his eyes and his style of speech, even the cadence of his voice really hammers all this stuff home and really makes it work. And there's also all these great moments that Carpenter puts in where you're not sure if you just saw him. And just like Jamie Lee Curtis's character is feeling the same thing. It really puts you in her mindset. Like, did I just see him peeking from behind that shrub? Or am I losing my mind too? Or is he showing me something that's not happening because she is our lead character? And as you're watching it, you are second-guessing yourself. And there are very few horror movies that do that without the aid of a bunch of jump scares, right? A lot of horror movies now will make you second-guess yourself because something will jump out at you and you'll jump and it ends up being a cat or nothing (laughs) or a door slamming or whatever. And it's like that has its place, right? But like it's a little bit overdone at this point. And this movie doesn't really lean on that too much. There's a couple moments that you could term as jump scares, but most of it's just Michael Myers stalking his prey. And that the idea of a, a horror character that doesn't run, that takes his time, because this is not a crime of passion, right? This is not him chasing. This is just him, I'm going to kill and I'll get there eventually. And it's something that modern movies like It Follows really draws upon, right? And the terror of that moment of someone very calmly coming towards you and no matter what you do, he's not going to stop coming. He is like literally this force, this shape, as they call him in the in the credits, that just keeps coming. And even if you have a gun, there's nothing really you can do to stop it. And that is terrifying. Yeah. And what sticks with me the most, which might push it over like the other John Carpenter movie that I'm, you know, that is like tied with it now in my mind. Like I love The Thing. Like The Thing uh, great, might be great on movie. my list. But what might push Halloween over the edge is that ending, which I think is like the best horror ending ever because it just leaves Mm -hmm. you cold like like you were just saying dave like how the shape Mm -hmm. 
it cannot stop is its own thing is like f- from another world even the ending just proves that point and it just leaves you cold and you're like what did i just experience i just i just lived through hell and and yep. uh the carpenter is like there there you go we're done yeah <laughs> and carpenter like probably the greatest genre director ever like yeah if you, you know, because it's not just horror, like he also did uh, Assault on Precinct 13, which would be close to making my list. You mentioned the thing, even like Big Trouble in Little China, Escape from New York, They Live. You know, there's a lot of really good options. Basically, I think the only Carpenter movie that I've seen that I'm not a big fan of is Christine. Um, mm. And I think that's just a source material thing because I read the book as well and I came out of it like, wow. I don't know how John Carpenter made a watchable movie out of that nonsense. uh, Well done. Uh, But like, there's just so many great choices. And I also love just John Carpenter as a person. He just seems like a chill dude. You know, like they asked him like, you know, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? He's like, I kind of want to play video games and watch basketball. That's it. I have no, I was like, yeah, good for you. You earned that. Take, take a break. Yeah. It's totally fine. It's like, I'm out. This is, this is going to be maybe uh, controversial to say, but I'm okay. If he doesn't make another movie, let him just live his life. He's fine. Yeah. yeah. Hasn't he done enough for you, fucking? Exactly. Like, he's just, he's... I will. Before we move on, I want to point out Starman is another like. Oh, great! Movie. I think it's yeah. underappreciated. People don't talk about that movie enough. It blew me away the first time I saw it, like three years ago. I love Starman. So I think it was the first Carpenter movie I ever saw, actually, because my wow. parents had a VHS of it. Uh, so I watched it when I was like, I don't know, eight years old. You Jeez. know, and it was just like. And I, you know, and of course, like you watch it again years later and you're like, I don't remember any of this. This is not, (laughs) what is going on? But a very good movie, two very good lead performances in that movie too. And it is genre fair, but it is really like a romance. It's a romance. Yeah. Like he does, like Carpenter is just very flexible with his stylistic choices. It's pretty impressive stuff. That's what surprised me about Starman because I was expecting something more sci-fi driven but it ended up being one of the most beautiful romances i've ever seen on screen i was like whoa unexpected john carpenter good job uh good job good job buddy um good job buddy speaking of unstoppable he's been waiting for the marcelo (laughs) and i know he listens hey hey johnny (laughs) um Speaking of unstoppable forces, this podcast, no, Jaws, uh, by Steven Spielberg. Good old, good old Stevie. Um, yeah, this, pretty good director, that guy. He's got a future. Yeah. Guy. I, I think we're in agreement because Jaws, to me, I think it's it's the one I'm, I'm going to go to for my top Spielberg. It, it, it works every time. I was obsessed with it as, yep. a, as a kid. Uh, through college like I did a presentation uh, where I was dressed as Steven Spielberg talking about Jaws like for like a college film class love it love it Uh, this movie is just in my blood it's 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 part of me so yeah Um, and it's it's amazing how easy of a choice it is considering I was gonna say yeah I mean Schindler's List uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark Jurassic Park Jurassic Park Park, uh, and for me personally a movie like Munich uh, that I really love. Catch yeah. Me If You Can, Saving Private Ryan. Like, you just. So like, many. You could go and go and go. I mean, he's directed 50 movies, and, like, the vast majority of them, except AI, are really, oh, really on. good. Uh, <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> but Jaws, Jaws really stands out to me um, because it is a movie that, if it is not perfectly cast with these three lead characters, it doesn't work. Yeah, it falls apart. You need all of them, and Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfuss, and Robert Shaw 
are all impeccable in their roles. Like, I don't know how much of this is Spielberg's direction, how much of this they brought to it, how much of this is dumb luck. I don't know, but oh my God. And also, speaking of luck, I don't think this movie is anywhere near as memorable if that goddamn shark works. <laughs> it's true. Like, I, did, yeah. I mean, so much of it is like, you know, we, we talked earlier about the horror of the unknown, and this is the perfect example. And like, you know, I said, Halloween's the greatest horror movie ever. You could make an, certainly an argument for Jaws if you want to place it in that genre. It certainly has horror aspects. I could make that argument. It's also like an adventure film and a family film. It's got a lot going on. But the fact that you, until the end, you almost never see the monster that Jaws is really makes it it builds that tension and you also just see like i mean i love spielberg but this is i really feel like in terms of craft in terms of camera work he's showing off a little bit in this movie he's pulling out all the stops but not in a way that's obnoxious exactly it's very easy to step over that line but that very famous zoom out um when the shark is first appearing and you see it from roy scheider's perspective it's i love it not because it's a showy move but because that showy move tells you something it shows you the fear that roy scheider that martin brody has in that moment and it really solidifies everything that's happening there and it's it's also one of the first movies i remember watching that showed the like the evil of greed and politics in a really kind of subtle way like this isn't a movie about politics this isn't a movie about greed that character with his amazing suits uh with his anchors all over everything is one of the scariest characters i've ever seen on film yeah and not in this way where you're like you're afraid he'll do something to you but that he would sacrifice anyone and anything for the almighty dollar and that is what sets our our other characters apart from this world is that Brody would, you know, his life would be easier if he let this mayor do whatever he wanted, right? Mayor holds the keys to his job. You know, fine. That's what you want to do. That's what we're going to do. Of course, I have on my conscience all these dead kids that the shark is killing, but his professional life would be a lot easier. Um, And Richard Dreyfuss, maybe his funniest performance here. I just, I love, I love his performance, but I think Robert Shaw is the best part of the movie. Oh, yeah. He just... I mean, he like he chooses more scenery than Jaws does, uh, and that is saying something because he really. I mean, he goes all out in this movie. That scene where he is telling the story of uh, you know when his crew, uh, when he was in when he was in the armed forces, uh, got taken out by these sharks. You know, the whole like it's you know doll's eyes, black lifeless eyes. I mean, it is. I mean, that is where you're like, oh yeah, this is a this is a horror movie. Yeah, like you like him telling that story is, and then you know the flip side of that, him you know them all singing together on the boat before the before the shark attacks is really really good. And this maybe has the most effective jump scare to me in film history the scene where the head pops oh, out yeah. of the ship where they get yeah. it get i don't know why it gets me every single time i've watched this movie and i've probably watched this movie 25 times and every time that goddamn head rolls out uh and the the sound cue hits john williams gets me again and every time i jump i know when i know exactly <laughs> the moment it's coming and yet every time it jolts me when that happens, because you're still in that mindset where you're waiting for this giant man-eating shark to come from around the corner because you are in its element. You are in water. I don't care how good of a swimmer you are. I don't care how many oxygen tanks and flippers you have on. You're not a shark and it's going to end poorly for you. Uh, and there's so many moments in here that just like 
talk about memorable. I mean, just the like being lowered into, you know, into the ocean with the cage and like just there's so much great stuff here that just really, really hits home. And it is like there's a reason it is, you know, the blockbuster and not just because it was basically the first of its kind. But I don't know that there's ever been another one like this that really captured the imagination of people who'd never even seen the movie. Like, I didn't see this movie when it came out, and I knew what Jaws was. And I I went through that thing where you get in a pool, right? A pool that is self-contained, no ocean. And you still have this moment of like, what if Jaws is here as a child? Like, you have that feeling, and it just goes to show you, one— how effective this movie is and two like how little we know about deep ocean there could be anything in there so it's terrifying on its own and then this movie gives you a real reason to fear uh and it just man it still works i mean and this movie is decades old at this point but does not feel like it at all exactly oh oh my god um last one of this five and then your top five Tambien. Um, oh, that one you don't have any trouble pronouncing. I see. <laughs> I'm a horrible Spanish speaker, but sometimes I get it right. I, I, I'm yeah, I'm good when it comes to stuff like this. Itumo matambien just rolls off the tongue. Um, yes. Alfonso Coron. Uh, this one, okay. It's not that you need me. It's not that you need to convince me that this is a great movie. I know it's a great movie, but it's like one of those. Where it just so happens to fall under a list of mine of like, I've seen it once, it affected me, but I wish to see it again and like have that connection like I think you have uh, with what it. If, what if I told you if you didn't rewatch this movie that you're homophobic? Would that help or would that hinder your watching? Okay, I'm going to write that down. <laughs> uh, no, it's um, to me like, I mean, it's very easy to make an argument for something like Children of Men. Uh, I was going to say, maybe Children of Men might make my lists, you know, but that's, yeah. I mean, it's wrong, but it's a valid choice. It's fair, fair. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I think this is, I mean, this will be maybe my favorite coming of age story ever put on film. Yeah. Um, Helps that it's like, helps that it's queer too, which is not a thing that you see in a lot of coming of age films. Um, like unless it is a quote unquote gay movie, and this is not that. This is to me, this does not necessarily like you're like like movies like But I'm a Cheerleader. That's a gay movie. It's like a gay movie for gay people coming of age, right? This right. is like something as you come out of the closet, you're like, oh, you got to watch But I'm a Cheerleader or whatever the movie is. And Itumama Tambien is also about a place and a time uh, in history. Um, and is is it takes its time on this road trip getting there and exploring why these boys are the way that they are and what uh, what what this country is like during this time and I kind of I love that about the movie that it that it doesn't just jump to the romance it doesn't just jump to the fun it really kind of digs a little bit deeper but like honestly this movie is all about the the three lead performances. Uh, Maribel Verdú, Diego Luna, and Gael García Bernal are all, I mean, just, just stunning, stunning performances. And especially the two male leads, there's this really interesting mix of bravado and fear in the two of them that you never see, especially in a coming-of-age story, right? Because they're not scared of a thing that's coming, 
they're just they're just scared because they're young boys, right? They're in that they're at the precipice of changing, and that's a terrifying time. Um, and I also admire the fact that um, that Quaron stops himself from giving you any happy endings in this movie. Mm. There is a version of this movie where these two men end up together or they come back to each other eventually and have a romance. And that's not what this movie is, right? Because mm-hmm. that wouldn't fit with the kind of culture of machismo uh, that's, that's going on here that you're getting kind of a front seat to. And the only reason they're able to connect it all in an intimate way is around a woman, Right. Right. With a woman in between them, essentially. That's the only way. And she allows this. She guides them into this. But even after that, that's like the last moment they have a, a moment of intimacy together. And the fact that they're separate at the end and they come back and they they interact with one another. But it's not the same. Right. It's just this was a period in time. And now it's over. Now it's gone. We can't go back to that. And it is a heartbreaking moment because everything in you as you're watching this movie is rooting for them because you know they love each other. There is no question in your mind as a viewer. You know that they are meant to be together. This is a pairing that was written in the stars. This was destined. And you see them interact with each other and you know they both know it. But they're both still so scared to take that final step without any guidance, without anything distracting them. Because that's too scary and too real. And anyone who's ever had to come out of the closet knows that feeling, Mm -hmm. right? Because if I fully come out and I fully am in a relationship with someone of the same gender as I am, then I can't lie about it. I can't be like, I was drunk or I was only doing it because there was a pretty girl there. Like, you can't tell those lies anymore. And they never get to that point where they can be purely honest about what they feel. Uh, And that is heart-wrenching, but very real and very genuine. Uh, and it just, yeah, it's a movie I've seen probably five or six times, and I just keep going back to it. And it's a really interesting watch because at the beginning of this movie, I don't know that your two male leads are terribly likable. They're kind of, you know, they're teenagers, they're jackasses, you know, and they're only they're only palatable when she's around. But by the time you get to the ending of this movie, they both become palatable to you and you desperately want them to be happy. And that's an incredible arc that Quaron creates in Itumama Tambien. There you go. I'll watch it again. All right, Dave, you convinced me. I'll watch it. Um, But it's also one of those movies where like I, I come in with expectations and maybe it's that, you know, that maybe lack of resolution that also hit me. It's like, oh, maybe, mm. yeah, now I'm thinking about that more. It's a tough one. It's tough. Yeah. It is, yeah. Um, now, you know what? Let's move on to the final five, okay? Okay, top five. We're finally here. Here we go. We're going to cross the two-hour mark. Um, this, <laughs> this, this might be a record, actually. The longest one-on-one podcast episode I've ever done. So, congratulations, wow. Dave. All right. I love uh, it. Yeah. Usually for the long episodes, there are more people here. But just you and me, we're going to cross That's the two-hour right. mark. That's all um, we need. Number five, It's a Wonderful Life from 1946. Number four, Pan's Labyrinth from 2006. Number three, Vertigo from 1958 number two stalker from 1979 and number one lawrence of arabia from 1962 um where do we begin uh okay how about this stalker um andre tarkovsky okay Mm -hmm. Uh, he is a difficult filmmaker for me to get into (laughs) 
<laughs> oh yeah, it's it, not just you, buddy. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's homework. It really is. It's like studying. You gotta, yeah. you gotta work at it. And I, I saw Stalker in a theater about three years ago. Oh, it's awesome. And I, wa- I mean, I love that I went. I still remember that experience of watching Stalker in a on a big screen. You know, first time watching that movie on uh, was was on a big screen and coming out of it thinking. What the hell was that? Oh, what did I, do? I know I watched something great, but I cannot, a totally valid reaction. To I cannot any Tarkovsky movie. I, uh, and the other Tarkovsky movie I've seen is um, is, is it? Yeah, that one. Yeah, his, uh, what I'm assuming is his like, most famous. Those are one. the only two I've seen. So yeah, I'm yeah. And and Solaris, I I I understood more, but it was also one yes. of those where it's like, well, I appreciate the craft more than my connection with it because it it was hard it was was, uh, inscrutable um but talk about stalker okay because it's your number two of all time um i mean how many i'm curious how many times you've seen it and like with each viewing do you like unlock more of its mystery or does it oh yeah yeah Yeah. okay it's a movie like you know uh like we talked about uh with paris paris texas um the first time i watched it i was like that was pretty good like I've, and, but you watch it much like you when you saw it, and you're like, you feel like there's something great that I'm missing here, um, and it's just not quite there. But by the third time I'd watched it, I, I, you know, it's it very easily could be my number one. Like it's just, and Lawrence of Arabia is a movie that's been my number one for basically my whole life. Like I saw that movie for the first time when I was like 11, and it's just stayed at that level. Uh, but Stalker, I. I love I do really love a film that is challenging and yeah. that is a really apt description for Stalker. This is there are some movies on my top 25 that I would feel comfortable recommending to anyone. Stalker ain't one of those movies. <laughs> um, yeah. Stalker's like it's like 2% of people I know. I'll be like, "Yeah, you should check this out. I want to know what you think." But most people will tap out of this movie about 30 40 minutes in cuz it is maybe not maybe. It is the slowest paced movie in my list. And it's not even close. Like, talk about taking your time. It really, really does. But it just, it's hard to describe. Like, I don't envy anyone who has to write, like, an essay about Stalker. Because it's it's really, you mentioned inscrutable. And I think that is a perfect description of this movie. But it has a lot to say about humanity, a lot to say about identity, the way we interact with people. There's so much there. And it's never afraid to just completely put on the brakes and stop the movie to have a conversation about philosophy like and that that takes a master to get across without me completely turning on the movie um and he finds a way to do it and it's a movie that i know that i'm going to end up going back to again and again and again like the first time i watched it was probably two years ago um and i've watched it three times since then so it's a movie that i definitely like it's, you know, some movies you watch for fun, some movies you watch to kind of open your mind a little bit and try and figure out some things about yourself, about humanity, about art, about what we're doing on this planet. Like, And this is the kind of movie that this is. Um, this is not a movie you just put on in the background while you're folding laundry. Like, this <laughs> yeah. is a movie you – this is a focus. It's, you know, the same way that, like, there are – you know, if you're talking about books, they're like beach reads, right? Gone Girl is a beach read, right? Crime and yeah. Punishment is a novel that you have to, like, pay attention to. And, you know, 
Stalker is more like that. It's it's one of those movies you really have to focus on. And also, frankly, you have to be in the right mindset for. Like, I'm not always in the mindset to watch a deliberately slow film. Um, and Stalker definitely is that. It know, Tarkovsky knows exactly what he's doing. I think he designed the movie to be difficult and to be structured in a way to challenge the viewer. He's not interested in making... It sounds like I'm talking trash about it, but I'm not. He has no interest in making an entertaining movie. Like He's not interested in your, uh, your attention span in this movie, right? Yeah. He's like, if you're, if you're on my wavelength, you're on it. And if you're not, I don't care doesn't matter to me i'm gonna i'm gonna create my art the way it was meant to be and but also just like visually this is a beautiful beautiful movie to look at like just from a technical perspective like oh my god and you know if you're one of those weirdos that loves annihilation then you have tarkovsky to thank right yeah without without stalker annihilation does not exist like there is a lot of dna shared uh with with stalker so, and I know people are very passionate about that movie. I think it's pretty good, uh, which got me a lot of hate on Twitter because I was like, yeah, I like that. That was all right. They were like, what? It's the greatest movie of the year. How dare you? Uh, so I, you know, and I err on the side of art house film. That's just, that's just my style. That's what I like. It's not negative or positive, but Tarkovsky is like right up my, right up my alley and Stalker is his best work that I've seen so far. So there you go. Yeah. It's one of those like you said it's not one of those just put on in the background to watch i'm glad i saw it in a theater when i yeah. did see it, it makes you focus it's like exactly a it makes you just concentrate on what's going on and um i i had seen solaris like at home and mm-hmm. i was kind of struggling through that but i ended up like i said in, uh, enjoying it for its craft, admiring what I saw, but yeah, it's. Uh, I, I I I do hope to watch more Tarkovsky and like you know truly get the man and his work because there's just a yeah. lot there, and it's I don't want to say I don't I don't want to say it's like homework, but it is. I, yeah, I think it's valid, yeah, right? It's I right. would actually argue that for me, Solaris is more difficult because it has enough. It has enough things in it that it feels like a normal movie. It feels like it's a, it's a narrative where Stalker like doesn't even attempt to put forward things you recognize. With yeah. Solaris, you could see why why Soderbergh remade it. Like you can see the the patterns of what he's picking up there, um, which is a, a great remake, by the way. Like I still think Tarkovsky's is better, but Soderbergh's remake is very very good. Um, and I can't think of many filmmakers that I would be like, yeah, just do a remake of a Tarkovsky movie. No big <laughs> deal. Go pick that up. But if anyone would do it, it's him. But um, but Stalker is so far removed from standard narrative structure that like I accepted on its own terms a bit more than Solaris. Solaris, it feels like it's headed in a direction and then it's like, oh, oh, bump the brakes. We're just going to stop right here and do something totally different. So it takes a little bit of like, I have to like reorient myself where Stalker is a movie that reorients you from the first frame. And you know, you're, you're watching something different than what you're used to from film. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Um, now to something a little bit easier. Uh, it, uh, it's a wonderful life, huh? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, it's oh god, it's one of those. Uh, uh, it's it's obvious, you know. It's a Christmas movie. Every time it comes on for me, I watch it. I tend to watch it. Oh, let me ask you this: this, this is actually 
I think it's a good question. I don't know whether you think it's a good question or not. <laughs> I hope you do. You're asking it. <laughs> do you watch It's a Wonderful Life when it's not Christmas time? Can you yes. just watch it in the summer? Yeah. Yes. Yep. yep. I watch it a minimum of once a year. I watch it every Christmas. Yeah. Uh, it's like the, the film that me and my mother watch together every year because uh, it's one of her favorite movies. And I think that love got passed down to me. It is. But I, I definitely will watch it. Like, I'll watch it in May. I'll watch it in March. Like, November, December, whenever. Like, I think it's just, I think it's just beautiful. I think it, um, it's got great performances. It has maybe the most wonderful message. It's, it's weird. It's like, I mean, this is a leftist movie, by the way. This is like a, this is like a communist fairy tale. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's like, I mean, if you look at the end of this movie, it's like the entire world comes together to support this man because he's been a friend to all of them. You know, it's like that's the whole that's the whole thought of the movie is like, you know, you'll never be poor as long as you're surrounded by people that love you. And that is a powerful, powerful message. And of course, you know, Jimmy Stewart is great uh, in it. Um, Everyone in it is really good. Um, It's the movie, the only movie guaranteed to make me cry every time I watch it. Like it just gets me that ending gets me every single time when the whole town comes in and helps him and celebrates and he's there and his brother shows up and his you know his buddy wires him money to like help all this stuff come true i mean it just it works on me and i'm waiting for the day and i hope it never comes i'm waiting for the day where it doesn't work where like i'm like oh that was nice but i don't have like the waterworks and the emotion that comes with it but like who hasn't felt like we don't matter We've all felt like, doesn't matter how successful we are or not, we've all had that moment where like, nothing I do matters. It would be better if I was never alive. Screw this, right? Um, which is probably the closest a movie from this time period would come to like suicide, right? That's right. what this movie is about. Like, what if I just never existed? What if I just removed myself from the equation that is life? And being shown that like, no, look at everything that changes. One life has impact that you never realize, Um Throughout history, throughout, like all these people, this entire town is impacted by this one man's life, by the choices that he has made. And like, what's more powerful than that? What's better than that? You know, I mean, it's and it's got it's 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 interesting to me that two of my top five movies are movies that now are very highly thought of. But when they first came out, were not successes like this was not a movie that did well upon release like people didn't like it and you know you could argue if you wanted to be a jerk about it that it got popular because like you know uh tv stations got a hold of it and played it every year on christmas and just inundated the populace with the drug that is it's a wonderful life but like man this just this really works for me like there's not i mean you could make you could make arguments that this is not forward-thinking uh, feminism-wise, right? The mm. the idea that, oh, well, if she hadn't married him, she'd be an old maid, <laughs> and she'd be a librarian, and she'd be wearing glasses. And, uh, but, it, like, that's not the point. The point is to show this man that, that he matters, that the decisions he makes matters, that how he treats his wife and his children matter, right? Him yelling at his kids to shut up because he had a bad day has an impact, just as holding them close and keeping Zuzu's petals matters, right? Because yeah. I love that that is the symbol that things are back to normal, that he can reach in his pocket and have this physical manifestation of love from his family that he can hold in his hands, which is what he needs, 
right? Instead of being annoyed by those petals, he looks at those and goes like, finally, it's real. Finally, I can go back to my family. And even if I'm going to jail, life is worth it. And like, what a wonderful message that life is worth living even when it's not great it's still worth going through because look at the impact you have on everyone in your life. And it's not just George Bailey, right? He had more of an impact, right, in some ways because he, you know, sold houses and took care of people. But you could have done that with any of these characters in the movie. You could have done it with his wife. You could have done it with one of his kids. You could have done it with the school teacher that he yells at. You could do it with Bert and or Ernie, uh, which is very strange that those characters named Bert and Ernie. Um, <laughs> but you could take their lives and their lives would matter too. It's not just that George is just this amazing human being. It's that we all have an impact, even if we never travel, even if we never go to a big college and we never, you know, become a lawyer or become whatever it is you want to be and travel the world and have your, your suitcase to go along. What about the moment when you're a child and you, you know, you do you tell the shop owner that like, no, you made a mistake. I need to stand up to him. And that saved a life. You know, just doing the right thing at the right moment can save and impact lives. And that is just like the most wonderful message I can imagine. Like this movie, like just thinking about it kind of warms my heart and watching it makes me cry. So it's it's just a great, great movie. It is. It is amazing. Like there are lines in that that still stick with me. Um so many years later, uh, like the, the one line I keep repeating to myself sometimes is like, oh, do you want the moon? I'll catch you the moon. Like that uh, to me is like one the of ultimate the- romance. I mean, the the sexual tension in that sequence. Yeah. Like every movie wishes it had half like that scene where they're both on the phone and they're like leaning in together. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Like that is hot. That is a hot sequence. And there's nothing going on there. There's no kissing. There's no fondling. There's no sex. But it's just them being so close and not willing to admit that they love one another. Like, it's the ultimate will they or won't they between the two of them, you know? And it's just, oh, my God, it's so good. Yeah. And maybe it's something people uh, don't realize because it it is also a beautiful romance between them. That that, that connection, that spark is on screen and it's captured so so beautifully. Um, And... As you were saying uh, all that about It's a Wonderful Life, I was thinking about your number one, Lawrence of Arabia, and how that is also like the measure of a man's life. And mm-hmm. last time I saw it, I also saw this on the big screen. I keep saying that. I hate I, you. I hate I'm you. very I hate lucky. You. I hate it, you forever. It is the one movie that I'm dying to see. I, I have to see this on the big screen before I die. And every time they release it, like they have one of those like roadshow events, I always happen to be like out of town or incapacitated in some way where I can't go. And it, I have to see it on the big screen someday. I'm, I'm God very, damn you, Marcelo. Very sorry to rub it in. But uh, yeah. Yeah, this is about five years ago. It was at one of those um, uh, phantom events, which I'm like, yeah, oh, yep. we'll see how good this is. But I was astonished to see it was like on the biggest screen at this yep. multiplex. It was like 4K, like the, the remastered version. And yeah, this movie still blows my mind. And it's... I think the only reason it won't make my top 25, which I know is like you you hearing that, you just like think I'm an idiot. But No, it's fine. It's your <laughs> list. It's my list. Is that like as as much as I think it's like 
exceptionally made. It just doesn't hit me as much as it should. And mm. I don't know. It's it's just one of those things. Almost like Citizen Kane. Like where I, I, I think it's perfect, but will it make my personal favorite list? I don't know. But I love it a lot and maybe you talking more about it will convince me like to revisit it and maybe it'll hit me harder this time I watch it but talk about Lawrence of Arabia why is it your number one how long has it been your number one forever Forever. I mean it's like it's like I saw it when I was like 10 11 12 something like that and you know when you're that age I think everyone has that like one movie that just is like oh shit movies can be like this like I had no idea that a movie could be this amazing and this kind of life changing. Like watching it, like it was it was one of my dad's favorite movies, and I watched it with him, yeah. so it has that connection as well as well. And like honestly, if you ever needed to know that, that the Oscars were a bunch of bullshit, is the fact that Peter O'Toole has never won an Oscar and that he didn't win an Oscar for this. That's insane. It's like it's completely insane because this is one of the best performances ever, um, and it's it is the ultimate epic epic in scale epic in length epic in the story it's telling i mean it just like the sequence where they're the like the horse charging sequence i mean it's one of my it's one of the best things i've ever seen on film and it is it's incredible to watch because you're watching a man who starts out like let's be honest like lawrence is a big dork like that's that's who he is when the movie first starts you know he uh he's not a warrior he's not he's technically a soldier but he's not Right, he's just kind of floating through, and watching him change um, to the you know I think the real moment that's scary is the no prisoners moment where you realize that Lawrence has become this bloodthirsty creature that all of his enemies thought he was, which he never was before. Because there's all these moments of just like pure joy. There's a moment of him like he's got his garb on and he's just like twirling in the desert. Like, he's just so pleased with himself, you know? And and that, in comparison to everything else that goes on, is so stark. And, like, God, you just want to talk about a beautiful-looking film. Like, these shots in the desert, I mean, this is, this is magic um, on screen. And the thing that's amazing to me is basically when they were doing these scenes in the desert, at most they had two shots to do it in. Because he was so—David Lean was so specific about this that— he didn't want footprints in the sand because if you walked, like, say, from left to right on screen and then you wanted to do that shot again, you start on the left, you can't have the footprints on the right because that would have all been washed away. So they had to clean all that out and start again. Like, yeah. this is like a labor of love. Um, and there's some, you know, there's all sorts of great extras whenever you buy a DVD. There's a lot of interviews with Spielberg. This is Spielberg's favorite movie. So I feel like I'm in I'm in really good company here. I mean, I think the only thing, the only negative of this movie is a, is a time capsule aspect of it that you have. I mean, you have brown face. Let's just be real. That's, yeah, that's what's right, happening. Yeah. You, have, you have white actors playing Arab characters. And that's, you know, watching it in 2021, it's like, oh, but you have to remember, like, this is a very, very old movie. And like, also, those are really great performances. Like, Alec Guinness is great in this movie. To me, his his best performance, which is a little weird, given that he's in this heavy, heavy makeup going on, you know, and it's just like, and you, it celebrates a man for his intelligence and his cunning more than his strength in battle. 
Like, it's not about, like, he can ride a horse faster, he can wield a sword better. It's about him making his way in this new world. Like, the only white man who has managed to infiltrate this brown world. Um, No one else has managed to do it. And also has maybe the most memorable filmed sequence ever. Uh, The, you know, the scene, the mirage sequence where you're, you're first introduced to one of your lead characters. I mean, this is... I mean, I watch it still, and I'm in awe of it. It's like movie magic. Like, you just watch it. And talk about a movie that takes its time. That sequence is long. Like, it's not a, like, okay, he's coming, he's coming, and, like, five seconds later, he shows up. It, like, really takes its time as the unreality becomes reality. And it's just, like, this is virtuoso filmmaking and acting in motion. Like, and it's a long movie. It's almost four hours. And yet... Like, you know, if you log all your stuff on Letterboxd, like all of us nerds do, uh, this is the movie that I've watched the most. Mm. I've watched it seven times in the five years that I've had Letterboxd. Like, it is just, it's interesting. It's a, it's a great movie. It's a powerful movie. It's an impactful movie. And also, weirdly, it's become a comfort movie for me. Like, even though it is has a lot of depth, it is a movie I can just put on because I've watched it so many times and gone back and forth with it. So I kind of know it by heart at this point. Um, and there's also essentially a, you know, for the time it was written and performed, there's essentially a rape scene in this movie. That's right, yeah. Um, you know, and it is hard to watch. And most of it because Peter O'Toole is so goddamn good in this movie. It's incredible. Like, he's on screen the whole movie. Like, I don't, I don't think there's... There, if there is, there's maybe one scene in this movie where he is not front and center. Like, maybe after his death and you hear people talking about him. Yeah. But that's it. Other than that, he's probably in, you know, three hours and 38 minutes of a three hour and 47 minute long movie. And yet, there's not a misstep in his performance in the entire runtime. Like, there's not a moment where you're like, oh, that's Peter O'Toole leaking through. Like, he is Lawrence. You know, he is English, as as some of the characters call him in the movie. And it just, it is a, you know, people overuse terms like this, but this is like virtuoso, tour de force, whatever, whatever ridiculous terminology you want to throw at it. This is it. This is one of the greatest performances ever in one of the greatest movies ever. It's just like everything came together just at the right moment for Lawrence of Arabia. And it's a movie that, even though I know not everyone's going to love it, I try to make everyone in my life watch it. Like, mm. it just... You got it. Just come on. Just sit through it with me. It's going to be great. And even if it's not great, even if you don't absolutely love it, you're going to respect it by the by the time the movie is over, for sure. Yeah. Um, I had to make sure I own this movie on iTunes, and I do. I remember buying it. Um, and it's in 4K Dolby Vision, so I'm going to re- rewatch this pretty go. soon. Um, I should also say this. I recently was thinking about like my favorite aspects of a, of a movie, like you know whether it's like the actual directing acting music whatever score and editing is what i always go to as like, oh my god the cut the yeah. ultimate cut the greatest say, cut in film history yeah that the the smash cut in lawrence of arabia from the match to the it's a it's a literal match cut I yeah mean, this is where yeah so i i love that cut so much that i recently blocked someone on twitter because they didn't respect it enough so Son this, of a is, bitch. this is how i feel about this movie he was like well if i did it i would have had it on the other side so it <laughs> and i was like you are not going to sit here and denigrate the greatest movie of all time and not only that the most memorable greatest cut of uh, probably in film history yeah to me like, that is the cut that is the best cut of all time that is yeah. yeah also the music is great you mentioned music the score of this movie is beautiful 
Yeah. Like, oh my god. Yeah. I mean, it's just to me, it's a movie with no faults. That's why it's my number one. It's perfect. There you go. Um, we have two more. I know we're going out of order, but that's how I do things out of order. Um, let's talk about Pan's Labyrinth. In your top five, it's the most recent. From It came out in 2006. So yes. how did this creep up in your top five when the others well, like were you know, a little bit older? Yeah, well, it creeps up mainly because uh, Guillermo del Toro is my favorite working director. Um, I just I was lucky enough to go when I went to Los Angeles at the the LACMA, the museum there. They had a Guillermo del Toro exhibit, and I got to see all this stuff and see the costumes and the props and all the horror stuff that he's kept in his house for his entire life. And I'm I just jealous. like I'm, I'm jealous now. <laughs> oh my god, it's so it's so incredible and. I he's another one of those directors that to me has only made uh, one bad movie. Um, he made Mimic, which is not a good uh, movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the rest of them, I mean, I am all, all, all in. Um, and this is, you know, it wasn't a terribly hard choice. I think, I think Pan's Labyrinth is his best, but. He's made a lot of other really, really good movies. I mean, you know, relatively, relatively recently, you have Crimson Peak, um, which I think got unfairly maligned by some people when it first came out because they were expecting something that it wasn't, um, which is very strange. But, you know, Shape of Water, I love Pacific Rim. It's like the ultimate popcorn pleasure for me. Um, The Hellboy movies are really good. Um, I think the one that was probably closest for me instead of Pants Labyrinth is actually The Devil's Backbone. Oh, yeah. um, Which is, oh, my God, so, so good. Kronos is also really good. I mean, it just, he is a... He's just a masterpiece machine, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Like he's just like everything that man does. I am all in. Um, I'm still very bitter about the fact that he was supposed to do the Hobbit movies um, and ended up having to bow out because that would have been so weird and so dark and so incredible and so different from what we got. I'm not one of those like Hobbit haters. Like it's not as good as Lord of the Rings. They certainly have their faults, but like I still enjoy my time with it. It's fine. Um, but a Del Toro like duology of Hobbit movies. Oh my God! Yeah. Uh, but if you really want to get mad, just take a look at all the canceled projects that uh, Del Toro has had. Because, like you know, he's had like twenty-five movies that were supposed to be made, and they all sound incredible, uh, and none of them get made. So you can't ever take a Del Toro news piece seriously until the movie comes out. Like, like, <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, it's come out. Okay, buddy, whatever you say. So, yeah. um, but Pan's Labyrinth in particular, like it, 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 that movie hits me. I think it is my favorite Del Toro. And it hits me because that ending is so emotionally impactful. Not only, not only that, like it has all these elements of Del Toro so perfectly wrapped in there, like the ultra violence, which still takes me aback when I see it. it yeah, it, there's, it's it, bloody. It's brutal. Yeah, it's a brutal film. Yet, like Del Toro as a, as a person is like the most huggable, like lovable person ever right and you see the heart in his movies but yet there's also that undercurrent of like like evil yeah like like he loves monsters and he loves yeah. putting in the monster screen um both had, human monsters and monsters. exactly monsters. i was gonna say two exactly. kinds of monsters yeah. and he yeah. gives all this affection to like the you know the monster monsters and he get in and he like really makes one of the most horrifying human monsters like on screen like in Pants Labyrinth too. so god yeah just talking about the movie now like yeah everything I love about Del Toro is in Pants Labyrinth so yeah absolutely and and I think um, 
the ending is probably my favorite ending of any of his movies. Um, and also uh, an actress that uh, we've mentioned before, uh, Maribel Verdu, uh, ah, Tambien, also in this movie. Um, she plays Mercedes and she's wonderful in it. Um, but the ending of this movie, man, it is, it's so good because it is, depending on how you look at it, it is horrifying or happy. Depending on what perspective you take, if you if you believe that the fantasy world is real, it's a totally happy ending. It's fine. If you believe that the fantasy world is a creation in order to process her childhood trauma, then it's really sad. Then that child has been murdered um, in front of your eyes, and they're both. And in my mind, they're both true, right? Like this this fantasy world is real, and the real world is real. So it leaves you in this in this predicament as an audience member like am i supposed to feel good about how this ended or am i supposed to feel horrible because the monster the human monster won right she right. didn't escape she didn't get out and i mean and also just like visually i mean doug jones i mean just the the makeup on on the fawn and on the pale man i mean it just i mean it's not it's not technically a horror movie i wouldn't call it terrifying it's not like scary in that way but it is one of the most visually one of the most disturbing and gorgeous movies i've ever seen um and this is you know this is del toro in a nutshell like if you want to know what del toro's aesthetic is what his storytelling is like watch this 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 really encapsulates all of it for you uh but i think maybe my favorite thing about this movie is something that i learned from watching one of those director's commentaries <laughs> is uh how much del toro hates horses now uh because of this movie <laughs> oh i think the horses i guess were impossible to train oh, and they were yeah. kicking people and he's just like i'm never working with a horse again i would kill that horse if i could I'd kill it with my bare hands like he's so he was so so mad about it and it this was like one of his first like really big movies with a with a little bit of a budget so he was like really stressed out about making this movie but like he made a goddamn masterpiece like this this is one of the best movies i've ever seen and it's it's definitely there's there's like that list of like 10 to 15 movies that like if you are close friends with someone or if you're dating someone and it's serious you're like okay we got to watch these movies. I have to share this with you because this is something I love. I want to impart this to you. I want you to I want you to see this. I want you to feel this too. And this is definitely one of those movies for me. And like honestly, if you walk away from this anything but like I really liked it and above, I'm not sure we should hang out. I'm not sure you're worth my time because this is just it's it's pretty much perfect the you know and even if you took away the fantasy elements the costumes and the darkness like just the the story of this girl and this captain and this you know this caretaker that's trying to save her all the political machinations that stuff really works all on its own right people are going to remember the frog they're going to remember the fawn and the creepy way it moves and the eyes on the pale man and all that stuff they're going to remember that but like the stuff that affects me most is the human stuff like that is i mean just some really unnerving performances here like the the kind of the the blood and the hook with the the captain i mean it's, oh yeah ooh, it's a lot it's a lot but so so worth your time oh my gosh um so that was Pan's Labyrinth. That was your number four. We're going to end on your number three, Vertigo. This is kind of purposeful uh, uh, for me to end on Vertigo because, um, I mean, wasn't it like about a few years ago that Sight and Sound uh, named Vertigo the best film? 
Um, yep. It's and I rewatched it again recently, and it still holds up. I'm not gonna say anything bad about it, Dave. Don't worry. Good, um, good. Watch yourself. I know, but was this? <laughs> A difficult choice picking a Hitchcock because I'm assuming you love other Hitchcock. Oh yeah, movies. yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. So I mean, because for me, I'll just say the right, master of suspense for yeah. a reason. Like he, yeah. Like I could see myself putting North by Northwest on on the list. Sure. You know, uh, maybe this would be number two, uh, Vertigo, um, in terms of Hitchcock, but. Vertigo, despite and I have to mention this, despite because I kind of was reminded of this like the last time I saw it too, I, and and uh, I think we mentioned this like ninety minutes ago, like you know Hitchcock was also not a great person, not a great director. He, no. you know, no, he was a pretty bad dude sometimes to his uh, to his actors, but yet especially his female stars, his female, yeah, yeah. Not, um, not no, um, but <sighs> Vertigo is is amazing i don't know what else to say yeah. about it. you know it, it's because it feels like it's been said over and over but it just it's worth reiterating like yes yep. it, that is like also him in a nutshell that movie vertigo mm-hmm. is like it's him as a person but yeah he's at his craft there is like impeccable it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's, you know, and if, and if you're going to pick a favorite or a best Hitchcock movie, I mean, you got a lot of choices. Let's yeah. I mean, Psycho is a fantastic movie. Rear Window is incredible. Rebecca, uh, the one movie of his, I think, that actually won Best Picture. Yeah. Uh, still ridiculous. He never won Best Director. It's incredible. I think, I think so many, it, out of all of the directors in history, I think maybe modern directors owe the most to Hitchcock in terms of stylistic choices and camera movements. Um, and even a movie like Suspicion is probably my favorite Hitchcock movie. Like, I don't think it's the best, but it's the one I keep going back to. And I just, because it's, you know, it's Cary Grant as a femme fatale. How do you not love that? Like, it's <laughs> so, so good. Um, so there's lots of choices. I mean, some people love the birds. I mean, it's just, you know, really, you could just, like, throw a dart at, like, any one of like all of his movies and the one it lands on like sure that one we'll we'll make that the number three movie of all time because all of his work is so incredible my path to get to vertigo was a little strange um so for years i had seen almost no hitchcock movies i had seen like the birds when i was a kid and i had seen psycho like 15 years previous and i was just like and it's it's like you were talking about like i know they'll be good I just like, eh, I just like got in the mood. It feels like homework. It's like, yeah. okay. Um, and I had a podcast 100 years ago called Pop Culture Case Study, uh, which, you know, did okay and had like Patreon supporters and all that. And people paid me to watch Vertigo. Uh, <laughs> so I got I got paid like, I got paid like $80 to watch Vertigo. Not so bad. that was, so I was like, okay, fine. I'll watch Vertigo. And I was all ready to be like, well, it's okay. It's pretty good. Uh, and then, like, you know, 10 minutes in, I'm, like, completely floored by The Craft, by by Jimmy Stewart, by Kim Novak. Like, it's just... And it's another movie, like Zodiac, about someone who just can't give up. Someone who just can't let shit go. Uh, and I kind of like movies like that, where it's about people who just can't stop and can't back up and be like, this is unhealthy. Um, I need to rethink my life and do something else with my time. Uh, but instead, he just goes and goes and goes and goes throughout this movie. And it it's, I don't know if it's the best Jimmy Stewart performance, but it's up there. 
Um, and he's had a lot of great performances. Like he's got, I mean, there's like five in my head right now that I can think of that are all just like top tier James Stewart performances. But this one, this one threw me off. Um, cause when I think of Jimmy Stewart, I think of Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I think of it's a wonderful life. The nice guy, the sweetheart, like, um, you know, the, the perfect dad, the perfect husband. And then you watch this and he is a, he's a monster. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like some of the things he does in this movie, you're like, and when you have Jimmy Stewart in your head, like nice, kind, affable Jimmy Stewart, and you watch what happens in this movie, it definitely will make you question what's what's going on with your with your favorite actors. It would be like it would be like if this movie never got made and they made it now and they cast Tom Hanks. Oh, yes. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's that kind of switch. And I was just like, I was not prepared uh, to see Jimmy Stewart like this. Like, I, I don't know how I feel about it. But like the more and it's a movie that I go back to a lot that I keep watching over and over again. And it just never it never fails. It never sinks in my estimation. And um, before I watched this movie, I was like, nothing will ever be as good as Lawrence of Arabia. And for a time... Vertigo overtook it. And it's always like these three movies, um, Lawrence of Arabia, Stalker, and Vertigo are like 1A, 1B, 1C. Like they're all just right there. Either Any one of them could be my number one movie very easily. And this is like, this is another one of those very few in the world, but just a perfect, perfect movie. Like it is, and it's, and you mentioned it, but it's like alarming how willing Hitchcock is willing to kind of put himself on blast in this movie. Like I am the monster. Yeah. That I'm showing you like this is who I am. And it becomes so clear as you watch it that he is he is seeing himself in Jimmy Stewart's character here. And it is and it feels uncomfortable um, as you watch it, as it should. And some of that is the score, uh, the Bernard Herman score. And some of that is, you know, the camera movements and that sequence where you just see the disembodied head of, of Jimmy Stewart and spinning. Yeah. I mean, it's just some there's some amazing work being done here and some like. I think something that Hitchcock maybe doesn't get enough credit for is the boldness of his choices. This is not just like, oh, this is the next thing you should do. This makes sense. He's making some choices here that are like, oh, uh, audiences did not see that coming. Like, I can't imagine how audiences back in, you know, back in 1958 reacted to that moment where, you know, the head is spinning and there's the circular pattern going on. Like, this is not something even now that you see very often, but certainly not in 1958. Yeah. And there's, uh, there's so much we can say about Vertigo. I just want to also point out, like, the, the opening credits. Like, that is still iconic. Um, yep. Saul Bass, right? That's, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. But, uh, it's, it's still, like, there's just so much in that movie that still resonates with me. And I don't know, like, I will have to, it's going to come down to the wire for me between, like, what Hitchcock I'm going to put on my list, whether it's going to be either this or North by Northwest or Psycho. Or really anything. Yeah. I mean, if I give Rope another shot, then maybe Rope will go up there too. Is yeah, there's there's a lot. Yeah, but, Rope yeah. is great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, and like you know, that's the other thing. He's you know called the master of suspense, but he made some pretty good comedies too. 
That's right. It's called The Trouble with Harry. Like, really funny. Yeah. Like, has a really good grip on a lot of different genre. Um, So it's weird to call anything as far as Hitchcock goes, like, oh, he doesn't get enough credit or he's underrated as this because he's, like, you know, known as the greatest director to ever live, basically, especially, like, of relatively modern times. Like, you're like, yeah, it's Hitchcock. Uh, But there are certain things that he does that I think people don't realize or they focus so much on the suspense aspect that they're like, oh, yeah, the man was gifted in a number of ways a total a total monster uh to the the women he works with but like as a artist as a director pretty pretty impressive there you go um and i think that's where we leave it because i'm looking at the clock we've we've reached the two hour oh and 30 God. minute mark <laughs> jesus <laughs> longest episode I've ever done with one guest so congratulations again dave thank you for doing this thank you for sticking with me uh sure. and before we let you go plugs where can people listening find you online god if we did actual plugs we'd be here all day of so many (laughs) stupid podcasts um you can follow me on twitter at darn that dave uh probably the most recent podcast i've started is called off screen death uh with me and my buddy mike so i pick a movie off of you know an afi or a sight and sound list and he picks a movie that has below 69 percent on rotten tomatoes nice that maybe was like kind of a missed movie so we're trying to figure out okay there's so many movies you can't ever watch all of them uh what should you spend your time with before you die uh instead of you know instead of you know living your life here's some movies you could watch uh and you can follow that on twitter at offscreen death there you go um and as i mean again this this is great dave i mean um i do have another a podcast recording coming up and that'll also be a very long one and this is my second one of the day. So oh God. you caught me at the right time. Because imagine... Right doing, in the middle. Right in the middle. Because like <laughs> this one turned out great. Um, I feel sorry for uh, the next one I'm doing. I'm not going to say what it is. Marcus, I apologize. Um, but <laughs> this was great. Dave, thanks again. And as always, here's my, final, here's my catchphrase. I always end the show with, hey, see you at the movies. No, I never say that. Okay, bye.